Yeah, this was the only episode on the DVD that didn't have special features. Why do you think that was? Perhaps well, the features were too special and they didn't want to make it feel self-conscious? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it might have been they just, you know, this was one of the more tightly produced episodes. They didn't have, like, you know, the the leftover anime. You know what? This is a, a great question to, to jot down for John. Be like, hey, Lepidopterus, like... Was that just like the perfect like production episode? Y'all just bang that one out, and they were like, "Yeah, no, no revisions, no nothing." It was great, top to bottom. <laughs> well, it was really kind of tough to tell on like the uh, the commentary track, but they like really had nothing for it. They were like, "Oh yeah, there was a bunch of like good music in here," and like as I listened to it again afterwards, and I was like, "You know what? There is a bunch of really kind of cool music that goes on throughout this one. A lot of new music for like Cardholder and Doe." And um, the oh, the, yeah. uh, the action up front had some cool music. The da, 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 like well, that yeah, whole they uh, were about uh, how that was their Dragon Con music. Ironically. Yeah, and that was where I was like, oh, that's just like a little bit of kismet right there. Good word choice. Yeah, I was gonna say that is that is the most apt thing. They're like, yeah. So I mean, this is two weeks after Dragon Con. You guys are probably blah blah. blah. Uh, <laughs> it was like, wow, this is this is interesting. <laughs> Go Team Venture! Brothers. Gary, nobody cares about the Venture Brothers. People care. Well, just be quiet. All right, fine. People really need to know this stuff. Welcome out, ladies and gentlemen, to another spectacular episode of Conjectural Technologies, a Venture Industries podcast. I, as many times is the case, am your co-host, the inimitable Brock Savage, a professor, an international man of enigma <laughs> and i am joined this evening slash afternoon slash morning slash whenever you are listening by my longtime companion the inimitable the untamable the unconquerable the well-heeled baron beast lamode and as we are almost always and when he is not with us he is in our hearts we are joined by our resident dinner theater denizen the Vaud villain, a man for whom prop mistakes just give him props. Now, tonight, we are looking at a very special episode of Blossom. No, just kidding. Tonight, we are looking at a very special episode from season three, initially airing on August 3rd, 2008, called the Lepidopterists. <laughs> so first off, I want to address the fact like beforehand, and I may have gotten it a little bit, so it might be in the, the post or pre-roll, but Savage is like, yeah, I don't know, guys. Like, I might just have to be bringing my B game. 
<laughs> and then just Michael Jordan walks out onto the court. He's all like, see, I suck. Like, <laughs> I told you my B game was still pretty good. Dude, yeah, no, like your, your B game is apparently like the Michael Jordan equivalent of Space Jam. Like, <laughs> oh, so, I guess I'm going to play this pickup game, knock it out of the park. You're welcome. Right. <laughs> I know that this is wildly off topic, but it, this has stuck with me ever since I heard it. Do you guys remember when the U.S. was finally allowed to put its NBA players into the Olympics team? And you had, like, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan. Like, you had every – The 96 dream team. You had every – like, Larry Bird, every great basketball player of that era on one team. And if you – they got over there and they played one game, like just a scrimmage because they never played together like this before. So they got out there and they played one game and there were no cameras, there were no fans, there was no press. It was just the guys and basketball. And every single one of them said it was the greatest, most fun basketball game they ever played in their lives. It's very field of dreams of you. It really is. You know, and it's kind of one of those things, like when the cameras aren't on, you just get to be yourself. And that is a theme that we see over and over and over again in this episode. And you said it was wildly off topic. It started that way, but then I pulled it around like a kid who just mouthed off and isn't getting away that quickly. <laughs> so let's go ahead and dive into oh before we dive into this episode tell me about everything that's been going on with the helper network um <laughs> uh right now uh we, we we've been in a bit of a hiatus and we're kind of uh you know taking a bit of a production stretch uh Can I we... please just say that the way you use the word hiatus right there does not in any way, shape, or form reflect the amount of work that has gone into our podcast over the past two weeks. Like, you just said the word hiatus like it was somehow equivalent to vacation or hall pass, when in fact you and I all know that we straight up got dressed up to use the telephone the other day. <laughs> Like, oh, man. we wore suits. There were cocktails. I mean, uh, yeah, no. Um, really, when I say hiatus, I mean just doing the easiest part of running the whole Shabbatl, which is releasing it online. Um, <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm not doing that part. Uh, but, yeah, no, the, the whole team has been uh, working on uh, – Dragon Con 2020. Um, Dragon Con 2020. So by the time this uh, we release this, there's like you know hopefully that stream uh, you know barring any review, um, will have uh, you know posted and you know you'd have seen us on Dragon Con. Um, so I would just like to point out that you said the word review and you somehow managed to put an exclamation point on the end and an upside down exclamation point at the beginning. C. <laughs> <laughs> no um like that was the last we've heard uh from the the email was uh you know it was like you know thanks for your submission um you know we'll review it and then if we have any problems we'll shoot you some notes 
Uh, so far, no notes. So at this point, no news is good news. Let's, uh, let, let's just take a moment here to kind of reflect on, on what this is. So we got connected with DragonCon, and they asked us to put together a podcast. Now, of course, we're part of the Helper Network, so we have several other podcasts that are part of it. And we sat down, put our heads together, and came up with a fantastic uh, premise for what we could do with our 55 minutes, right? 40, 45 to 55. What what was our final time on the episode? We, the, the time on it, they told me it was 50 was cap, and we came in at 49 and 57 seconds. Yeah, so boy. I got All as right. much into that. <laughs> and that's where babies come from. Yeah. So essentially what happened was uh, we put together this thing, and actually the part of it that I was the most excited about, the part that we all got dressed up for, and made cocktails for was a part that, as it turns out, will not be included in the Dragon Con uh, uh, panel discussion. Instead, uh, it will end up being released in some other fashion. Perhaps, uh, you know, if you can spare a dollar, you will get to witness what happened to all of us the night we decided to drink Doctails. <laughs> oh uh man and okay like just to, to kind of give like a preview of it like we're going to go the david fincher route like we're not going to talk about it we're going to talk about the reaction how was your body the next day savage i felt it and <laughs> not in the way that you would normally feel a hangover not in the way that you would normally feel it was like this weird blend you ever gone on a roller coaster too many times? You think to yourself, there's no such thing. I call shenanigans. I once went on the Fury seven times in a row. There's a moment when you don't want to do it anymore. Rika Brown called them micro-fractures. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, the, the, it's the the shot you take when your body hesitates, but you're like, I'm doing it anyway. Like, yeah, no, I, I, um. It was like watching an episode of Fear Factor plus an episode of like Playboy television from 1964. And then waking up feeling like. A David, like waking up feeling like a David Lynch TV show. Well, dude, I was going to say, like, I actually, uh, I haven't watched the movie, uh, although I've read a, a ton about it, um, because it just had the perfect title, um, and apparently it's an allegory for STDs. Uh, it's a horror film called It Follows, uh-huh. and that's that's how I would describe my hangover, like, uh, it just followed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> like, uh I I want to say that like I I got like a mighty push, but no, that was not it. Like I hung out on the toilet most of the day. Like hung out. Like, hey dog, how you doing, John? <laughs> so of all the drinks that we tried, uh, and uh, the one that got me the most, I know for you guys it was the uh, what was it? This the Ruddy Bottom. Yes. Um, uh, for me, it was the Red Moco Cooler that got me the most. So um, I hope that you guys, our listeners, are as excited about the Dragon Con thing as we are. And I hope that you get the chance to see this thing that we put hours of hard work into drinking. And believe me when I tell you that drinking was hard. 
Well, and uh, because of all the elements from Dragon Con that we put in and then doing the DuckTales segment, uh, we have officially kicked off YouTube, YouTube channel. Um, so look for the Helper Network YouTube. We've got some propaganda up there now. Dude, um, that, that music video was balling. That was outstanding. Holy smokes, that was way better than we deserved. Uh, the music video from Randall? Yeah. Yes, the yeah. Minister of Propaganda. Um, absolutely. In fact, I've got to get that for the, the YouTubes. Um, we've got a lot of our fake product ads and stuff. Uh, that's probably where we'll be putting the video footage from from DocTales. Uh, once we get the okay, that's probably where we'll put the, you know, the Dragon Con footage and other stuff as it kind of comes up. We've oh, got the, like, uh... you know, it, this is forcing us to do some video elements has made us up our game creatively. <laughs> The uh, so we've got long some cut ideas. of John will end up on there as well, though. Uh, oh, yeah, John. The, the, the John... Uh, oh, the interview uh, with John Rossetti, or yeah. Rossetti if Brock is saying it. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, also, uh, something I, I like, and uh, maybe we're, we're going to go ahead and do the old uh, Doc Hammer Jackson public commentary. Uh, Doc Tales was fun, and I would like to do a, like, Doc Tale hour. Now we can't necessarily keep up the steam because there's not a lot of canon on DuckTales, but uh, I've been thinking of a few terrible like drinks myself. You sent me a recipe earlier that I am so 100% in because <laughs> it features the greatest beverage of all time, Sundrop. And I am so in on Sundrop. Like I looked at my wife she looked at me and she thought I was coming for her, but I was like, nah, baby, it's the sun drop. Yeah, so basically you take, uh, <laughs> basically you, take uh, you know, a double shot of like, you know, corn mash moonshine, right? White lightning. And then you get the uh, pure uncut, uh, like, you know, uh, fountain like syrup and do like a, a car bomb of the double shot into that. Um, you know, there's a there's a few varieties we can run on that. I, I'm very interested to see if I can get like the uncut sun drop. Like, I mean, I make it sound like a drug. <laughs> no, I mean, is this pure? Is this uncut? Like how much carbonation did you put in this? So yeah, yes. lots, of, uh, lots of new stuff as we pretty much take a break on on releasing content um you know just so we can really like build up and uh yeah i mean release more content like we have taken a quote-unquote hiatus so we can work four times harder to bring you new stuff and we are really excited about it thank you <laughs> welcome back welcome back welcome. Right, yeah, no, absolutely <laughs> it's really good to actually get back to doing a, a good old conject tech uh dissection like we, we it's been a, it's been a few weeks since we've actually recorded one of these i love the way that you said conject tech and then dissection it like you should really just say conject tech dissect everything can't be a full word you got to shorten everything that one just kind of sticks off the end there <laughs> yeah no yeah. yeah it's it's uh was it uh in 1984 new speak yeah like that's super science talk <laughs> okay so i'm listening to this audiobook series on uh oh, on uh the global history of espionage and he uses these little like um you know kind of 
jargon elements. And so it's like signal intelligence is sig int. And then he'll make these like little jokes and try to include the, uh, the jargon. So there's like these weird stories of like apes or ravens being used as like, you know, intelligence uh, apparatuses in various points in history. So there's like ape int and bird int. <laughs> and I was like, this is like when, when spies try to be funny. This is why they're suave. Because <laughs> like, they can't do comedy. Right. Gotta have something. Okay, I get that. I've seen it. So let's go ahead and launch, if you will, into today's episode, if you will. And by episode, I mean 22 minutes of pure joy. Tonight, we discuss the Lepidopterists. And no, that is not someone who collects stamps. That joke will be made later for everyone's benefit. Can you describe the opening sequence, Vaudevillain? Great we job. Get, Thank you, sir. You're welcome. <laughs> and scene. Um, no, we got a really cool... Um, I mean, I remember the first time watching this, and to be perfectly honest, I don't actually think I got what happened in the entirety of the episode the first time. This was a really good, tricky writing one to a 12-year-old me, but they had me right away with the opening because it was this big, huge uh, robot versus cocoon um they do the whole uh and i'm a kid of the power rangers era as well so the uh the any kind of uh robots that turn into any kind of a bigger robot i'm already game for and um hold up hold up we, we, you have not set the scene vaudevillain <laughs> vaudevillain you are arching our scenery right now bro you wait 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 whoa, whoa you turned to the denizen of dinner theater and then tried to get him to set the scenery. This is what he does, is go around and knock down the scenery. I started by going to the end. How <laughs> Lynchian of you, sir. Why don't we instead, I, be, should I even turn to you? You went uh, with Space Jam earlier, okay? <laughs> you know what he's gonna start off with? He's gonna be like, yo, in order for me to set this scene, we gotta go back to when the Ottoman Empire started raising taxation rates on the Silk Road to truly understand how this happened. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> so, allow me, all right? The monarch is attacking Jonas Venture Jr. on Spider Skull Island. Now, at first thought, you're like, wait, he's attacking Jonas Venture Jr.? Okay, he still gets to go with the Venture brother. That's cool. So, uh, turns out Jonas's Spider Skull Island is way more heavily guarded than the Venture compound. And Well, I mean, so, it's got a moat. Yeah, right? <laughs> so, the cocoon is speeding toward uh, Spider Skull Island. The monarch is yelling orders, charge the lightning cannon! Time to show Dr. Venture the true power of the cocoon! And of course, then we bounce over to Spider Skull Island where we see Jonas, Sally, Ned, Ned, poor sweet Ned, and the captain watching the cocoon approach them. But Jonas Venture Jr. is amused. He's like, oh, 
it looks like I've got my own costumed nemesis, right? And he doesn't quite understand that it's Cocoon. And this is where we get one of our recurring jokes where he's like, oh, it looks like he's uh, got a flying pine cone, but I'll give Mr. Evergreen a run for his money, right? So at which point Ned jumps in with, he's a jolly good fellow. And Jonas Jr. replies, no time for inappropriate baffling sing-song, Nettie. Venture team, assemble Ventronic. And they slide. Do uh, you guys remember Voltron? Do I? Yeah. Uh, no, and uh, like, th- that was one of those shows I watched growing up, and uh, the Netflix reboot has been pretty on par, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, I've only watched like a season of that, but this was a great, very much... Uh, you know, not just uh, Voltron, but, you know, Vaudevillain brought it up earlier, like a, you know, very much a Power Rangers thing, that kind of uh, giant mech Japanese, you know, uh, color-based. Like, they color-code everything. <laughs> they really do. Um, yeah, and, and that was one of the, the better parts. Like, so it's, you know not there's only four of them so it can't be as many sophisticated pieces so of course you know jonas is the head and the torso uh and then you know sally is the legs yeah and that tells you a lot about their relationship uh and then uh and this is one of my favorite things that comes up later is that uh you know pirate captain is the right arm and and like he specifies like you know i formed the right arm and then uh ned shows up as like a clown <laughs> like hold a clown up, head like you know, so an ice cream cone sliding head. down into their cockpits right like jonas slides into his it's oh, red yeah. gets the helmet on ready to go uh sally slides in actually sally slides in first she's gold right i mean yeah. it looks straight up like voltron pirate captain slides into his it's blue blue ventronic ready to go and then ned slides down and goes wee right and he slides into what Mantis I describes as suspiciously like a preschool classroom. <laughs> okay. And as the helmet's coming down, Ned's going, no! And like ducking out of the way. So Ned, no life, right? So um, at this point, the other like, uh, like Voltron lions are like shooting off into the sky, getting ready to join. And then Ned's come spiraling out of control. Like, and it's this weird blend of clown head and ice cream cone. <laughs> right? Actually, I want to say they used to have, uh, like... You want to, but will you? <laughs> they used to have, like, the ice cream cones, like the prepackaged ones that you could uh, purchase from, like, you know, the ice cream truck. And it was designed like a clown. Like, you put it in a bowl and, like, you know, the, the cone was the hat. Like Yep, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, also, so, like... That's what Ned's got going on. Well, and that was in a time before, like, all of that was just a bunch of creepy stuff. I love Brown the way that you just said that truck. was in a time, like, it wasn't more than 15 years ago. Like, oh, well, okay. yes, that Back was in, in a time long ago. When clowns could have their heads put in ice cream bowls. We call it the early aughts. (laughs) Back when ice cream trucks weren't like some weird, creepy, like overused trope for child molesters. Uh, Can Uh, we be 
spot on when we talk about how that is not a new trope. And like, I'm not quite sure why the cultural consensus has decided that clowns are creepy, but maybe it's because uh, I actually think it has more to do with Stephen King than any other factor. Well, and the fact clowns are just fucking creepy. I'm sorry. (sighs) Jar. You realize you're up to like 50 bucks now, bro, right? You know that. It's not quite that much. It's 45. No, that's also what I use to pay for uh, DocTales and uh, the Zoom subscription. No, sir, that is not how that works. I appreciate your effort, though. I'll put in an IOU. No, that is not how that works, sir, because you know what's going to happen, because I have been keeping track. And very, very soon, sir. Wait, show me. Show me your tally. I think you're just taking my pound of flesh. The tally is every beep. You need to go back through all the old recordings and count all the beeps that we have to put in. (laughs) It's very clearly that that was your ninth. I had my first. I was the first one to get it when we put the institution in for it, like five minutes into it. And then I think it's been you every time since. You will address me the same way Dr. Mrs. Beast addresses me, Daddy. (laughs) I know she's sitting right there. Please tell her not to hit me. (laughs) So... Uh, we've got all of these things coming together to form Voltron, or Ventronic in this case. Like, you know, the captain forms the right arm, right? And then Ned goes, wee! And like this clown ice cream cone spinning thing somehow forms the left arm that's like this weird drill on a swivel. And like all of a sudden everything's complete now. And it's just going even weirder from there. So the monarch, of course, is completely baffled. What is that thing? And Dr. Girlfriend's response here is great. She's like, uh, I think it's a giant robot with an ice cream cone for one of its arms, I think. (laughs) And then we get the monarch insisting that the lightning cannon be fired. He says to aim for the head. He wants to smell the burning flesh of that little venture abomination. And what does it do to Ventronic? <laughs> and this is one of the great, great lines. Um, it actually doesn't do, do anything. Like, it actually powers it up. And he's like, ah, who, ro- who loaded the lightning cannon with robot food? <laughs> right. So uh, <laughs> It made me think of Avengers. When, like, they have their first encounter and Thor hits Iron Man with the, the lightning, and he's like, oh, yeah, thank you. And in theaters, I'm like, robot food. <laughs> Are you done? Are you done? Are you done? I I'm going to go feed my robot. I actually really appreciated that reference. I just wanted to arch you just a little bit because I love you. I was hiding under your porch because I love you. So <laughs> from there, uh, they decide to take... I believe it was evasive action, uh, but <laughs> this is where we actually get to one of my favorite moments in the entire episode, which is horrible to say because it's only at the very beginning. Um, <laughs> so we've got Jonas Venture doing so, Ventronic Blue, use the energy sword, right? And we get this energy sword 
and then they swing the sword. And of course, since the pirate captain is in the arm of this giant robot swiping through the air at super fast speeds, you just see him being pushed up against the back of his seat. Dude, yeah, it's like he's a NASA astronaut training. Like, just, ah! Oh, it was so good. It was so good. And it was one of those moments that just, it, there are so many things I appreciate about the way uh, Doc Hammer and Jackson Public tackle this universe. And it's little details like this that make it all worthwhile. Like, like Hammer and Public are the kind of guys who watched Avengers Endgame. And as soon as like Captain America goes back in time, they're like, wait a minute, he's got to go have a conversation with Red Skull. Isn't that going to be weird? Right. So wait, he's got to go put that back in Natalie Portman's ass? <laughs> like, I mean, let's just, do we want to talk about this for a second? Or no, we'll, you know what, we'll just go. Like, the writers pay attention to those little details, and it makes all the difference in the world. And as we've got Ventronic Blue, <laughs> a.k.a. the Pirate Captain, Hang on, pushing wait, through the air, pressed... I really want to riff on this for a second. Like, yeah, Steve, und been here the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that. It's like, oh, uh, so you you look red. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. And yeah, uh, I apologize about that whole fascism thing. Uh, <laughs> I was I had young. a lot of time to reflect on that. Yeah. I've been working on the I've been working on myself. <laughs> I've been working on myself lately. Mindself. <sighs> yeah, everybody got all worked up. It was all high of hysteria. <sighs> Too soon. And that's actually that's in very bad taste. I apologize. Um so you know who's not apologizing? Jonas Venture Jr. Because he strikes the cocoon with the energy blade and it does massive damage. And, or so we think, because we get our opening credits. Then after the credits are done, we are back inside the, co the control room. The cocoon is busted to hell. It's on fire, stuff's not working, and the monarch then tells 24 that he's got to get Venture on the big screen. And he's patched through, and then he spins around in his chair, like, you know, uh, let's see, like Khan might, like, or like Dr. No might. And he's like, all right, you've got one minute, or to one minute to surrender your big robot thing. If you refuse, we'll open fire. I can only assume with more robot food. <laughs> At this point, Jonas Jr. is like, I'll give you 20 seconds to keep your wife, uh, kiss your wife one last time, Mr. Evergreen. And then the monarch's like, oh, wait, I'm the monarch. And then we get the resolution of this joke. So the flying pine cone is a, it's a cocoon. Okay, I'll be right back. And it's these little moments in this, like, this whole setup that just make this so delicious. And the monarch comes up with his retort. It's like, all right, I have another idea. 
I'm trying to arch you here. This isn't how it's done. What are you doing? And then he says the no-no word and Ned calls him on the no-no word. <laughs> well, and I love the, the whole idea, like even before that, like Dr. Girlfriend calls him out on his chair cliche. Yeah. Like, you know, he, he's just having a hard time with this whole thing. And he's really on like a professional level trying to, you know, you see him begin to try to level with JJ. Like, you know, no, this isn't how it's done. Like, you know, don't you understand? Like, this isn't this isn't a death match. Uh, and what does he call his like? Uh, you know, uh, we're we're just sharpening our claws. It's like fencing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and and JJ's not buying into it. Like he's like, you know, no. Like, why don't I just kill you now? <laughs> right. Uh, it seems really clear that Jay, like, now this was actually a little bit confusing at first because JJ had to apply for this, right? Uh, I don't, okay, so as far as I can tell in, in canon, the system seems to be as thus. The OSI is more like a govern-sanctioned protectorate that just kind of like, you know, gives you protection at the taxpayer's expenses, whereas the guild is more of a union where you've got to pay dues and, you know, assume that there's like, you know, getting your hours in and, and et cetera. Um, yeah, but you have to hire union workers and you have to observe the rules. So there's no way the monarch would just show up unless JJ would like, you know, and, and it, we'll get into this a little bit later. But, well, no, no, uh, what sanctions him is guild rules has nothing to do with osi has has nothing to do with protagonist uh, relations i mean for for being an associate professor of antagonist or protagonist relations like you, i'm surprised you don't know more about this you know <laughs> i uh, was uh, yesterday or the day before i actually watched fallen arches and they go into that a little bit there with orpheus getting approved for a team uh to get an arch finally and um I think it was, yeah, uh, Doc makes a comment about, huh, he got approved as a team. So assuming that, like, at some point, uh, Orpheus decided, you know, screw it. I'll go apply at the guild, see if we can get the old group back together. I'll put us down as, like, a team thing. Uh, it's never going to come out of anything, because then he has to, like, do that whole thing where he scrambles around and gets um, the guys back together again. And uh, so, yeah, it sounds like from that, he had to go and fill out some paperwork with them. But yeah, I agree with the, the, the guild not necessarily being a, you have to go and register with them for things to necessarily apply. They might just, like they do in this episode. No, show I, I'm telling you, and do you know why I know that he applied for it? Because hmm. he's able to pull up their info on the Rolodex. Well, no, well, no, no. He inherited the building and he's using a goddamn Rolodex. That's not his Rolodex. There is nothing about 19, late 1970s, early 1980s giant flying robot that says that he would not be using a Rolodex. Uh, that is Scaramantula's Rolodex or JJ, or like Jonas's Rolodex. Like you and I both know that. It's probably a mixture of both. <laughs> <laughs> Why throw away a perfectly good Rolodex? Yeah, no, totally. And like, uh, you know, again, uh it's one of those petty arching tools like yeah we're totally going to be here for customer service hold please right <laughs> um and i love okay this was actually uh something that i loved uh in terms of like you know kind of the 
congruency here. So Monarch drops the no-no word and gets called out on it. And then uh, Jonas Jr. drops a no-no word on the customer service line and gets called out on it. Like they're both super insensitive to each other on on levels that they just don't understand. So we're getting so far ahead of ourselves. Let's back this up just a little bit and examine the sharpening your claws. The Monarch is trying to explain to JJ how this whole thing works. And it's not about killing each other, or at least that's what the Monarch is saying, because he wants nothing more in this world than to kill Jonas Venture, or uh, Rusty Venture. So we've got the Monarch trying to do his due diligence, so to speak, although there is something in the way he is behaving that makes it seem like this is not his end game. So he's trying to explain to JJ how this works. And Jonas is like, well, you're going to sharpen your claws. Well, I'm going to deliver my killing stroke. Then what? And then Dr. Girlfriend steps in. Now, JJ's smart enough to listen to Dr. Girlfriend. And that's what gets a lot of people into trouble. Because then she says, then the guild steps up their game. You throw a rock, they throw a knife. You throw a knife and they come to your house when you're sleeping and murder your family. All right? So, and then the monarch gets his sweet little moment here. He's like, look, Dr. Venture. I love saying that. You call the guild and you get the damn rule book. I'll be waiting. And of course, then he plays tough and shuts off the screen. Uh, and then Dr. Mrs. Dr. Girlfriend says that she's not sure they're fooling anybody. But that's when the monarch calls up henchmen 21 and 24. And Dr. Girlfriend reminds him to call henchman number one as well. And this is where we meet henchman number one. They go up to the monarch and he yells that he wants him to execute a dark S7 maneuver. At which point, and this is one of the great little details, did you notice what the henchman did to acknowledge him? Yes, but you explain it so much better. No, 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 I'll wait, you go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I- I'm editing this, so I can just cut all of this. Correct, Beast. As you pointed out, <laughs> as you know, <laughs> 21 and 24 are like, uh, okay. And Hinchman number one crosses his arms like a Wakanda salute and bows and then exits with purpose. Oh, okay. like, I thought you were talking about something specific. Like, yeah, no. Uh, and I love the, the you know, image here um, because they actually talk about it a great deal in the, uh, the Go Team Venture book. Um, basically, all they did was give Henchman Zero, like, skeletal structure. And, you know, okay, maybe he works out a little bit. Like, you know, he's a little, he's more well-defined. He's definitely in better shape than... Uh, you know, Gary at this point. But just that image of like, you know, he looks a little bit more tactical. He's got, you know, some more like what looks like useful gear on. And, you know, he's a little bit more in shape and filled out. And then you have, you know, like Laurel and Hardy behind him. (laughs) Yeah, that's about right. Well, and don't forget, you know, they are the uh, the eponymous heroes of, of this particular block. Uh, you know, they're the whole reason we are here for Lepidopterist is, uh, 
you know, the bromance of 24 and 21, like, you know, the, the great comedy duo of the show. Uh, and we've already covered the death of 24, um, which, uh, you know, this is a big part of kind of coming back and covering what was special about him. And uh, yeah, this is one of those perfect episodes where we learn exactly like why these guys are amazing. All right, and 45 minutes in, we can do the intro credits now. We finally got back around to why we were doing the episode. <laughs> we did totally forget that up front. <laughs> so let's go ahead and cover that right now, shall we, chums? Today, we are beginning our henchman block. Today, we begin the section of the podcast where we examine the relationship between 21 and 24. We've and got several great- episode. What's that? And the section of the episode. <laughs> and the section of the episode. <laughs> so uh, before we jump into the episode, Beast, what is it that you think <laughs> makes this such a crucial moment in the relationship between the two of them? And smash cut to what I said earlier. <laughs> um no i mean they are the intentional comedy duo um they are uh okay being a muppets fan one of my favorite like you know setups in the whole thing is statler and waldorf and that's what these guys are like they're they're statler and waldorf in butterfly costumes you know they go around like being inept while simultaneously pointing out other people's flaws <laughs> Like, uh, they have a real penchant for, like, not being able to handle their own lives. But at the same time, like, it, it's like Loki, where, like, their mouths are the, like, you know, real weapon there. Like, they're going to cut your confidence to the core. Okay, I see that. I see that. And when it comes to uh, how these two kind of play out do you feel like their relationship in any way shape or form evolves beyond where we see them right now i mean uh or is this the apotheosis of their friendship well this is definitely like i would say peak 21 and 24 like the you know the the denouement uh after 24's death is funny and and good but it's definitely like a, a love letter to the end this is like you know what makes losing 24 heartbreaking is like episodes like these yeah. um you know so yeah i would definitely say like they're giving us like fever pitch like 21 24 right now um and I mean, these guys are just like so on point, you'll lose an eye. Uh, I mean, and of course not at their job because they're bad at their job, but like, you know, in terms of, you know, just kind of who they are as characters and their interactions. Uh, this is one of my favorite episodes because, you know, you've got Hinchman one and he's a deliberate outsider. You know, he's dressed just like them. He works for the same company, should be friends but there's a reason he doesn't work there like with those two in a dynamic and then like you you just watch them basically pick that guy apart like you know so like brock samson will dismember you physically 
21 and 24 will dismember your ego verbally. You know, the way you say that, it sounds like it's far more malicious and successful than it actually is. Well, it's uh, more like chaotic neutral. Like, <laughs> this is like uh, the, the cool kids at the back of the bus, like, running the dozens on you all day. No, man, these, these are not the cool kids under any stretch of the imagination. And the fact that you call them the cool kids says so much about you. <laughs> well, so, I mean, powder blue Nissan stands is our fucking boss, man. Hold up, hold up. How does the monarch describe the two of them right after he assigns the dark S7 maneuver and they trundle off to do whatever that is? Doctor well, girlfriend says, "I gotta ask: Is there a reason you always use twenty-one and twenty-four?" And the monarch's reply is, "I know it sounds crazy, but they both have that rare blend of expendable and invulnerable that makes for a perfect henchman." And that's where I actually got the name of the block—a rare, a rare blend of expendable and invulnerable. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'd say Gary's pretty emotionally vulnerable. He is emotionally <laughs> vulnerable. And I would assume that 24 is vulnerable to nails and buying used tires. Well, he looks emotionally like uh, dead inside. Like, he I'm dead like, inside. Yeah, like, <laughs> he looks like Ray Romano uh, died inside, like, you know, a decade ago. <laughs> that's that's one of the best things I love about his characterizations. Like when when he's out of costume, he just looks like dead inside Ray Romano. Assuming Ray Romano is not dead inside now. I was about to say you um, make a lot of assumptions. He did a lot of years on a sitcom that usually kills most of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it definitely killed Bob Saget. Like, oh no, no sir, because Bob Saget's best work was yet to come. Thank He's you, back Matt with a vengeance Ray. now. He's so back with a vengeance. He must have seen Bob true. lately. Like the the like the greatest moment of half baked. Like <laughs> Bob, Actually, I believe... Saget, Bob Saget's sitcom run was just the veil being pulled over our eyes. Like that man did Full House and America's Funny Home Videos, retired for fun. And then decided, you know, I'm just going to drop a bunch of swear words into a uh, Dave Chappelle movie. Let's see what happens. Well, I mean, it's an easy shtick to play after that. Oh, that test marketing went really good. That was a good focus group. So basically, all I have to do is curse now and tell incredibly dirty jokes about having sex with twins. <laughs> well, you've so, done that before all of it, though. That's the crazy right? part. Was he was doing that, and then they hired him anyway. Back in like the late '80s, early '90s, it was insane what guys could be getting away with. I mean, Tim Allen and all that. They still hired him. Like, <laughs> yeah, the comedy was just a front. He was just selling coke. The comedy was just a front. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, the thing about that is, Al was never his sidekick. Al was his uh, his enforcer. <laughs> The man on the other side of the fence was a metaphor for the man on the other side of the border. <laughs> you, oh, man, oh, like when you frame it like that, that like Al is Tim's Brock. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Well, I mean, imagine if you made Brock uh, look like the alchemist and wear a bunch of flannel. <laughs> Turn the mullet around and make it a beard. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, this is also where we get a really fun interaction with uh, um, the like 21 and 24 trying to figure out what a dark S7 maneuver is. And number one then comes in with the explanation, and it's very clear that they don't care. <laughs> well, right. and uh, what's interesting to me here is everybody talks about the guild handbook. We know that there is a separate monarch handbook. Well, I'm guessing that they haven't read it because they interrupt number one to explain that 21 and 24 only work as a duo. And then we're back to watch and ward on a call with June Jonas Jr., who is calling to complain about the monarch. And this is how we know Jonas made the call. Because Ward says, if you're unhappy with your placement, it's not really our problem. The guild is antagonist relations only. And this is where we get JJ's no-no word and Beast, can you tell us what that no-no word is? Good guys. Yeah. Joe, JJ says, well, who handles the good guys? At which point, Watch is like, whoa, I think the less hurtful term is protagonist. <laughs> right? Now, to JJ's credit, he immediately apologizes like, oh, uh, I, I'm sorry. Well, who handles the protagonists? Oh, Ward should have popped in and been like, no-no word. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, so, at the, you know, JJ has reached out because he feels like he's being improperly arched. His problem isn't that he's being arched. He's being improperly arched. Notice okay. what they said was, if you're not satisfied with your placement. Well, okay. Imagine, like, I, I imagine at some point that there is a tier of like science celebrity super science celebrity and wealth where it doesn't like do you have to apply or is it going to like they're, they're just going to take it upon you to like you know this is like for instance who is red death really arching once a year you know what i mean like who signs up and goes yeah, you know, I actually, I had my eye on Red Death. I see what that guy does, and I think he would be a great Arch. I don't like giving the uh, the holiday bonuses, so if you could just plan it, like, right before then, clean out the staff when he shows up, and then just rehire after the new year, that'd be great. <laughs> like, <laughs> it actually work out for taxes. Uh, like <laughs> Red Death does corporate events. Who does he Arch? Uh, pretty much Goldman Sachs. <laughs> Oh, dude, I would love to see him riding in on a Christmas party in, like, an ugly sweater. Like, you're all going to... Oh, we're wearing the same sweater. Crazy. Anyway, <laughs> we're all going to die. Yeah, I, I, I could buy that. So, at this point, uh, we get one of the more interesting jokes between Watch and Ward. Uh, Vod, would you please explain this joke to us in the least creepy way possible? Which one are we looking at here? Oh, oh, uh, <laughs> this one touched me <laughs> a little deep inside. Um, so essentially after... Possible. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> like yeah, he like, keeps giving me setups here, possible. man. So I'm going to use words like deep and inside. I yeah, you know, I can only guess how many cot versions of that troll doll you bought before they started recalling them. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that article today. <laughs> <laughs> oh god no because uh about the time this episode came out i actually had a high school teacher who had tons of action figures from all different 80s and 90s cartoons around his room and during lunch i would go in and rearrange it so all of them were having sex with each other and uh then i remember all of a sudden one friday night this episode came on and i was like ha that's what i do at lunch every day um, no, so essentially we get off the phone with, uh, with JJ here and watching Ward are, uh, kind of just comparing notes on how creepy he is. There's a little bit of a pause there and he's like, uh, did you ever make, uh, G.I. Joe and Rainbow Bright Hump when, uh, you were little playing with your toys and everything? Yeah, well, obviously JJ's what that would end up looking like. And it is a spinning damn image probably if the genetics went the right way. Or I almost want to see what the exact opposite flip-flop of that would be now is, to be honest. Like a tall girl version. <laughs> I mean, it's genetics. It's got to be every slice of the dice. So, I mean. I think we actually already know what that looks like. And it's Cardi B or Nicki Minaj. <laughs> like, equal parts, like, assassin and, like, like, make you, like, just, like, crawl your way out, Cuddle Bunny. Like Janelle Monet in like 2011, 2012. I don't know, man. She's more James Bond. Well, that's more of a recent thing. I thought. So, uh, I mean, I'm not really keeping it. Like, I'm going to have to Google my Janelle Monet fashions. I don't keep up with celebrity perfumes. I just. Dude, her whole thing, like Janelle Monet, her whole thing was the tuxedo, bro. Like, and she wore it. Like, well, yeah, no, that was definitely during the, the Jadena period. Uh, I remember that very heavily because that was in the the Luke Cage uh, like <laughs> in one release. Um, yeah. So, as that phone call does not go the way JJ expects, we are back to the cocoon where Ventronic. Now, bear in mind, as all this has been happening, Ventronic is still floating outside Spider Skull Island. So then Ventronic decides to head home. The monarch orders the cocoon to follow him, but this is actually where we get a really interesting interaction between the monarch and Dr. Mrs. the monarch, where he essentially asks, do you trust me? And she says, eh. <laughs> <laughs> Which um, after, after the passions of the monarch block, um, we understand exactly why that is. Like, you know, Sheila's very honest about the nature of their relationship. And it's not that she doesn't trust him on an emotional level. She trusts him on, an, like, an executive level. Like, you don't make good decisions, honey. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. The monarch absolutely suffers from poor executive functioning skills. So, uh, quick, quick sidebar on, on a similar note here. Uh, so, yesterday... I was doing very much all of the domestic duties and I'm crushing it. Like I'm having a great husband day, you know, great dad day, you know, great domestic engineering day. Like I'm getting things done. And then like, we're kind of coming on to close. Like I've gotten everybody to bed. It's about like nine, 10 PM. And uh, we've been having some issues with our PlayStation controllers. Like the charging ports have been going bad. Uh, there was one with like a bum joystick 
So like, I decide to bust out a control, like a, a, a screwdriver and start opening all these damn controllers to fix it myself. Smash cut to like midnight and like my kitchen table is like just full of parts. And <laughs> we don't have anything to like, we didn't have anything to control the, the PlayStation, uh, which is our main entertainment source um, because I, I dismantled the one working controller trying to put working parts in it. Um, so I took out the trash, uh, <laughs> to make up for that, that L. <laughs> that was very much my, uh, <laughs> like being trusted to make good decisions and I don't always moment. So if we were to ask Audrey Hartburn, if she trusts you, she would say, she would say when I'm awake she would say hell no have you met my husband no I make great decisions when she's awake it's when she goes to sleep I'm like yeah I can fix that <laughs> I don't have anybody stop me like no 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 you don't have those kinds of tools or knowledge or skills <laughs> you need to watch Napoleon Dynamite a few more times to up your skill game right so the monarch kind of has this Simpsons moment, right? Do you remember the Simpsons movie where, you know, Homer's the like, what movie? Marge, the Simpsons movie. What's the Simpsons? Is that, you know, uh, is that one of those new, like, TV adult? show that just came out 30 years ago. And here's what happens. So Homer turns to Marge. It's like, Marge, there's a moment in every relationship where you've just, one partner turns to the other and it says, you just got to go with me on this one. You just got to do it with me. And that is kind of this moment. And much like Marge, Sheila says yes. Right? She's going to go with it. But she doesn't know what he's going to He's playing very coy about it, too. Which is kind of unusual for him because you normally see him going ham on how much smarter he is than these <laughs> dumb protagonists. So at this point, like this is kind of out of character for him, but it makes for great dramatic tension. Okay. So from there, <laughs> we get the monarch talking to Jonas again. And Jonas is a little confused. He's like, Monarch, I kicked your butt. Now cease this. And then Ned jumps in with butterfly. <laughs> Pretty. <laughs> and JJ to his guys like, thank you, Ned. I'll handle this. Sorry. We like to let, let Ned make his own decisions. And the condescension in that line hit hard. Right? Like, I understand where that's coming from. As a parent, I understand where that's coming from. But it also... Like, it, it, it hit me a little sour. Well, I mean, uh, the way he delivers the one line much earlier on, like, you know, no time for a baffling sing-song. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, it's very much... Um, JJ has, like, good guy syndrome. Like, I'm a good guy. I'm trying to save the world. How, what do you mean? I can't be racist or prejudiced or a bigot. I'm saving yeah. the world. Yeah. He's a venture. I mean, it's totally his dad seeping through. Uh, never got raised by him, but he was still inside, apparently, like, watching along. So, I mean, he must have gleaned something from a dear old daddy. Well, and it shows you just exactly how 
strong Jonas's science was that certain characteristics genetically persist. <laughs> prick, uh, prick must be a dominant trait. Like, <laughs> <laughs> red mania, the recessive allele, jerk. That is straight up like, yeah. It's like having that nose. So at this point, uh, the monarch starts yelling to fire the lightning cannon. And then he like ducks off to the side, tells the henchman to jettison the lightning cannon, adjust the navigation angle and cut all external power. And you see this happen, right? The Ventronic sees the lightning cannon fall off. The cocoon lurches to the side and powers down. And Jonas starts monologuing about how the monarch's hate consumed him, and it's the downfall of some. Let that be a lesson to you, <laughs> Captain. Right, wait, like, wait, wait, wait. I I'm sorry. The guy who actually cut down the cocoon is the guy that you're picking on about how letting hate consume you? And the pirate captain gets, pardon the pun, a little salty about this, right? <laughs> well, I, I guess I shouldn't finish that giant cocoon. I was okay, I was a pirate. I get it. Look, if you can't get over my pirate past, we'll never move forward. And Sally has to step in with one of her two lines in the entire episode. It's like, boys, boys, the monarch's retreating. Now isn't the time. Hee <laughs> hee, right? And then Jonas is like, ah, I'll stop being such a jerk. Let's go back to Spider Skull Island. Let's reformulate our methods there. To which the pirate captain responds, sure, let's ignore the pirate. Ventronic, well, take us home. I know you can hear me. <laughs> right? Well, and you can tell that this is clearly something that's coming up a lot lately. Like, pirate captain is clearly sensitive to this. Like, oh, absolutely. He's a little raw, salty, like sargassum. Kids, are you ready to take an adventure on the high seas of breakfast? We have the only seas that matter. Color, corn byproducts, and candy. I want some gas station sushi for breakfast. Stop right there, son. This cereal is slightly better than that. Try new Pirate Crunch. It's filled with everything that makes your long car ride better for dad. Flavored with sweet, sweet trank and vitamin K, enough to take you straight to the K-hole for breakfast. Are you a kid or a kid at heart? Or maybe you have an orphan heart in your pleasure can. Tired of eating sargassum and cod liver spots? Does Alpha Dog give you a wee bit of an Oedipus complex? Try Pirate Crunch or your father will never approve of your lifestyle choices. Better than sushi from a gas station. <laughs> Slightly better. Slightly. <laughs> so they head back in and the monarch then has the cocoon go back to the lair. Um, can we take some quick guesses as to where Spider Skull Island is? I always figured South Pacific somewhere. I don't know why, but that's just always where I pictured it. Like, if you're going to head back to the lair... Because where's the lair? It, okay, realistically, 
I, I it's probably like Gulf of Mexico. That would be convenient. See, I kind of thought that too, but bear in mind, where's the venture compound? I have four corners region. Coast, right? That's out, that's the southwest, which means the monarch is going to be closer to there, which means Spider Skull Island has to be on the west coast. Yeah, but it would have to be down near Mexico for it to be tropical. Because once you get to like San, or once you get to like uh, Southern California, it turns cold fast. Well, it's still because you because the the Arctic current that's coming down. Yeah, and again, yeah. I don't know that's necessarily tropical because both twenty one and twenty four talk about how they're freezing in a little bit. Well, right? I mean, and the the Pacific is just a lot colder than than the Atlantic in, in general. Um, you know, because again, the, like of how their their current carries. Uh, I would speculate, I, I love the way that you guys are definitely like trying to put all the evidence together, but in my mind, I'm going to give you a more like venture answer and say like, it's in the middle of like Lake Havasu or like <laughs> Salt Lake, <laughs> the Salt Lake in, in Utah, like. Yeah, it's, 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 it's over there near Spiral Jetty. So here's what happens, right? So the, the reason I bring this up, is because he says they have to go back to the lair. And unless the cocoon is like a supersonic jet, it's got to be relatively close by. Well, okay. Uh, this is after they've established in Malice, right? So I guess the more important question is, where is Malice? I don't know. Because well, before... you feel like it's got to be nearby to like venture and everything. Because when he comes over for the like the house party and everything... I mean, it seemed like it would be a drive to get back when he brought the boys and he wasn't supposed to bring the boys and they had to go hang out in the cocoon and all that. But it wasn't like it would have been terribly far. I but feel it's like also quick... close enough to the, the one observatory that's actually a laser cannon in California. Which I believe was in, God, some old James Dean movie. I mean, and it was it was in something else. I mean, it was yeah. in some of these angels. A, like a the... laser cannon was in a James Dean movie? <laughs> well they didn't know how to turn it on or anything but it was sat back there in the background <laughs> that's actually how he died <laughs> they just put his body in the car they couldn't let people know like the the laser cannon backfired they got a lot of kick <laughs> speaking of kick yeah jj calls the osi a man answers, but then notices that it's OSI, OSI dry cleaning. And JJ is completely befuddled because he's holding the number from his Rolodex. From his Rolodex. From his Rolodex. All right. And the guy, <laughs> I actually love this line. He's like, I, I, I'm quite sure I called the right number. And the other guy's like, I'm quite sure I'm ironing a shirt right now. <laughs> At which point, uh, the captain enters and lets JJ know someone's at the front door. And JJ didn't even know they had a front door or why someone's knocking at it since they live on an isolated island in some sea somewhere, right? Uh, and then, of course, they the, door, the pirate captain opens it and they ask if he's Jonas Venture Jr. He says he's not, so they shoot him with a tranquilizer dart. And thus begins the long descent into madness for our poor captain. For the rest of the season and into the next season as well well and it's because of this that like you get some amazing 
pirate captain lines and moments from here until like you know all the way through season seven so uh you're welcome thank you <laughs> go on no that, that was it like that's all i had you're welcome like that will stop what, what more do I have to give? I'm giving you amazing zingers, Chairman. What more do you want? I'm spitting gold at you. I kinda give no more. So Jonas is below their line of sight after they shoot the captain and they see him as the captain falls. And they ask him if he's JJ, to which he replies quite awesomely, I might add, I am. To whom are the dead men I'm speaking? <laughs> that's yeah, that's a pretty solid zinger. Like that's that's uh, decidedly tough talk from you know a little like a man of that stature. But then you realize he looks from a like man a talking... who's one quarter rainbow bright. Yeah, well, but he looks like a talking fist. Like <laughs> it is definitely one of his better moments. And then Mr. Doe and Mr. Cardholder start making fun of him. And I love the interaction that Doe and Cardholder have. Like, in some ways, they are the perfect foil for 21 and 24. Because in a lot of ways, they're doing the same things just well. Well, and they also have a very much, uh, like, a was it Raymond Chandler-like banter? Uh, I mean, you know what? I'll go ahead and say it. I'll say it. I ain't scared. Uh, it's almost a Gilmore Girls-esque style joke banter. You know, they cut back and forth. And of course, like, you know, the names, uh, they come from like, you know, the American Express, you know, fake cards that they try to give people in the mail as ads, you know, Mr. Cardholder um, and stuff like that. Uh, and it's very much a, you know, a nod to the men in black and, and spooks and, you know, government agencies and stuff like that uh of course i mean i could talk about men in black and weird things like that for hours um so buckle in here we go all right <laughs> no uh seriously like this is uh one of the better you know couples that show up um in terms of like you know uh repartee that they have and uh of course you know it is very much like the like you said a, a mirror because it's uh you know also doc and jackson doing the voices and uh according to the go team venture bible here uh doc hammer actually came up with these characters well and the the funny one on that i heard off the uh the commentaries was basically he had a little bit of a corner he had written himself into where he needed something for it and he just kind of was like uh, and then we both do voices of two guys again. And then he just like assumed it would work. And basically they kind of figured it out from there. Apparently that is their go-to move when they're not quite sure what to do in a scene is write two new characters and you'll do one of them. I'll do the other one and it'll, it'll be great. And then they just sort of go. And that it, it's like that, that's all the confidence they need. There's like, wait, there's two new characters. Yeah, we do one and I, you do one, I do the other one. All right. And like, that's like their cup of coffee to get like going into a project again when they I feel like that's our podcast <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit of energy in a certain direction and hopefully we go this might work i think so <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's going to work of that i have no doubt and speaking of working 
Cardholder and Doe are putting in work themselves, trying to convince JJ that uh, they are not with the OSI. He asks, judging from your shoot first, ask questions later tactics, I'll just assume you men are with the OSI, to which Mr. Doe replies, OSI, never heard of it. And they explain that the OSI denies any knowledge of the Guild of Calamitous Intent, to which point Jonas mentions he's never, he didn't mention them. And Mr. Cardholder says, nope, but I did. See, he's a regular cut-up. So, <laughs> from here, he says, we were just, Doe says, we were just passing by, we heard that you had a butterfly problem. And you see, me and my associate here, Mr. Caldwell adds, are amateur lepidopterists. And Jonas says, you want to see my stamp collection? Uh, I, I feel like this was the easy joke to make. And the reason it works is because most people have heard of philately, even if they're not sure why, or if they associate it with QAnon. Well, I mean, also, uh, let's be honest, like, philatelist sounds like fellatio a little bit. Like, there's, a, there's an inherent, like, funniness there. And uh, I don't know, Fs are funnier. Like, numismatist doesn't roll as, roll as solid as well yeah. yeah it's not as solid in the joke like you know uh i would if we were new uh, only if we were numismatists yeah like i'm sure it's one of those ones if you had like a comedy professor they would tell you like piece by piece why it has like oh it has the funny syllable sound here you'll see with philatelist you're just like all right awesome i laughed <laughs> you don't have to break it down um <laughs> way to ruin the joke <laughs> well no that's their whole job like if if explaining the joke kills a joke majoring in comedy at harvard is quite it's excruciating like... i'd imagine like <laughs> eugene merman uh has a has a degree in comedy from harvard that sounds unfortunate i mean he's doing all right he's on bob's burgers He's hanging out with the master and a mustache. and I mean, is that like, are they at the point now where Harvard's like, build your own degree? Like, well, are they, they don't... Like a Chinese menu? Well, no, like, as far as I know, and this is the, mm, this is actually kind of pretentious sounding from top to bottom. It's like, Dead they don't me. have majors. They have concentrations. And yes, you pretty much get to pick your concentration. Got it. Okay. Yeah, Would have gone with a different word. <laughs> It, well, it sounded better than foci. <laughs> well, but it makes the dorms sound like places like where you camp to think about things really hard. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. like, just to take this off track, I, I was in... Uh... Just to take us off track? Yep. No, no, please. Because <laughs> I think we're approximately five minutes into the episode, and my time with y'all is counting down real quick. Like... I, here in just a little bit, I'm just going to jump to a point in the episode and then let you guys take over. And I'm just going to sit back and watch what happens. Or, like the audience, I'm just going to bask in whatever gets spewed. So this, this adorable one was a uh, puppy rescue here in town called Heaven Can't Wait for Puppies. <gasps> <laughs> And it was like, no, we 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 you, oh. we got to get these puppies out of here. Like, get them into their new forever homes. It's gonna be just like heaven. Oh, I work wow. in the other end of that field where we do a lot of the uh, sending puppies over the rainbow bridge. So I immediately read that the wrong way, and I'm like, I'm not reading too deep into this. So That's the most is, horrible is the thing location, I've ever heard. Is the location at a farm upstate? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, that was just about the worst thing I'd ever heard. I was like, does no one else see this? You put that onto a sign, no one saw this. Like, <laughs> I can only assume they were not fans of Don Bluth films. <laughs> oh, all right, I'll, I will let you resume track. That was my, my horrible I, I got to tell you, that was totally worth it. Like, I am so sorry for doubting you. <laughs> I've always got a good dead puppy joke in me, man. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and now you just made me feel really bad about it. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> so, did you ever answer our question about like which which baby Hitler you would kill? I was, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> yeah, All right, we're already talking about dead puppies. All right, yeah. So while we're while we're talking about so this, while we're talking about this, do you remember the time that in Spider Skull's hangar, the oddly scattered remains of Entronic revealed their secret cargo? 21, 24, and number one. God, those were good times. <laughs> oh, dude, man, I'm, I'm snipping that. That's like Arch of the Year Award. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. I am slayed. You know who is going to be slayed? Henchman number one, because he is a go-getter. And 21 and 24 don't like that. 21's complaining those ears have popped, and number one tells him to do the Valsalva maneuver, which turns out is the name for the thing you do to pop your ears. And then 21 points out that Hingeman number one isn't coming back. He is the red shirt in this episode of Star Trek. He's efficient. He's good at what he does. He can't possibly survive. And yeah, he's going to be toast. Uh, the captain wakes from his trank and do slumber, and as he's pulling himself up, Sally walks by, and they have a, like, how would you describe the conversation that they have? Man, that conversation. Uh, he, he, okay, so he's coming up off of his, like, you know, uh, a, a trank, and again, he's already a little emotionally raw and apparently already like a little agitated like he's already coming down so he already starts like yelling like i know you think i'm a disappointment and i can't do anything for myself um you know he ends up like calling her a bitch and telling her to go make him a fucking sandwich I um not his best moment like i really i will say i expect better and more out of fire captain like be addicted to trank all you want but go make your own fucking sandwiches man yeah Pretty much. Uh, it was very much like teenager and doting mother. And, and that is not quite the dynamic oh I imagined God. they were going to have. <clears throat> yeah, I did not notice that until you just said it, but you are 100% right. That is the, the screaming girl slamming the door. Uh... <laughs> you don't understand what I'm going through, mom. Well, the whole time she's just like sat there like, hi, honey, how are you? Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you're just like, she's like throwing stuff at her. And you're just like that poor mom. <laughs> well, and it's like you said, like, this is like one of, of two lines. Like, uh, Sally does not pass, you know, the uh, the Bechdel test um, here. Uh, and and <laughs> this episode doesn't pass the, the quote unquote Bechdel test. Like, Sally Impossible could be replaced with like a, a lamp uh and and still have like the the same functionality she's definitely not 
a fully fleshed out character uh as you've seen in in some more of the you know other episodes and in terms of a lady character um she's really not very fleshed out at all uh we get a lot of very strong well put together like you know lady characters sally's popped up pretty frequently and all you know is she's got a terrible taste in dudes yeah but i feel like that almost is a chick that you might know that girl who always just seems to have a guy who might or might not be like treating her like complete shit and you don't really know about her because she doesn't get to come out very often um like that is sort of a type almost um i've known a couple and they were never very well fleshed out people that i knew because they did kind of lead this weird sort of like what the hell's going on over there kind of a life i don't know they might have been honing into something or it might just been a complete oversight the it, she never does come off very strong but um i mean if there was potentially somebody that they had in mind that they knew that that was sort of based off of because they do say that they do base some of them even off of uh people they know and everything like when they talk about where Dermot came from I believe that was somebody that they went to school with or grew up around the corner from one of the guys I get, I get what you're saying but at the same time it almost could be a type just based off of the the relationship she does have uh it kind of almost suits being a shell of a person I feel like this isn't necessarily a gender specific thing so much as it is a personality type thing like because I have known a ton of dudes who fit this same criteria, who are like trying so hard to be like noble in their own heads that they are just letting other people take advantage of them left, right, and center. I'll take that. I'll buy that ticket. And it's not, you know, now granted, it's kind of played for laughs here because that dynamic isn't one that you expect from a grown ass pirate captain and a woman who is clearly younger than him. <laughs> right well the the vibe i get from from sally impossible is very much that uh you know and again because it's a riff on fantastic four she very much intended to marry her college sweetheart and that wasn't the life was cracked up for and then she just basically like you know married or like shacked up with like the venture version of the exact same thing which, I mean, let's be honest, like, sure, he's a little bit more sexually present than Richard Impossible, but he still doesn't seem like, JJ doesn't seem to be, like, as any more, like, actually present, um, emotionally speaking, you know, to Sally. Like, you know, again, one of her big emotional relationships is with Pirate Captain, and clearly that's not, like, even, you know, clearly well reciprocated while he's on trend. Yeah. So that happens. <laughs> and it pretty much just shows that the pirate captain has got a problem with Trank and it sets up a series of jokes later because nothing is funnier than someone struggling with addiction. So from there, <laughs> right? But a bum thing. <laughs> Rehab. <laughs> Well, and actually, I got to tell you, it, it is played for last, but I do appreciate that they show it because I feel like addiction is one of those things that is often underrepresented. And con especially considering where we're at in the country now, it is uh, almost prescient in the way that it's played because every, I, I forget what the numbers were, but one in three families now has a member who is struggling with addiction of some sort. 
or like, and it may not be necessarily be immediate family. Uh, but I mean, that's that like, you know, more people know someone with who is struggling with this than know Kevin Bacon, right? Like it is easier to get to addiction than it is to Kevin Bacon. And there's, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. That's why they don't play six degrees of Charlie Sheen. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, uh, for as, as fractured, uh, like, you know, uh, psychologically fractured as the world is, they really do handle like addiction. Uh, We see like, you know, later on, like in, in terms of like, I mean, they're, they're actually super compassionate if just by proxy of being a little like apathetic about things, but they, they very much like tolerate help and try to, you know, uh, get pirate captain back on track. Like, (laughs) um, for all the things that like, you know, the, the venture verse curiously does well, like, yeah. Uh, addiction representation is, is kind of one of them. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. They definitely take a, a large part of the sting out of it with, with humor and making jokes out of it and movie references to, you know, babies crawling on the ceiling and such. But I mean, they really wow. very compassionate. That was a, that, that was a deep reference, bro. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, real quick. I'm about to arch myself here. Uh, my buddy PJ uh, is a uh, good friend of mine growing up, you, you actually have met him. Um, and he, he came down for the wedding. I went up to Indy for his wedding. And he was talking to me about the movie Train Spotting. And he decided he was going to watch it by himself at his house. And there was that scene with the baby on the ceiling. And he turned to me as like, dude, I cried and then I puked. <laughs> Uh, and I burst out laughing like and I was really struggling to not appear like I was dismissing this very serious thing that he had gone through but his delivery of I cried but then I puked was just too good they're like puking is a step up from crying like oh man I was crying I bottomed out but then I puked and took a step up and got a little better (laughs) It, it, it was a whole thing. So I just wanted to throw that in there for posterity. So speaking of posterity, the OSI agents are about to remove the monarch's posterity. They've made it very clear that the monarch has killed his past five arches, which is clearly a violation. And they recommend, quote, pinning the monarch to a piece of cardboard, so to speak. So to help, they've invited out a specialist. And then Ned runs in and... Mr. Cardholder attempts to trank him, but the dart just bounces right off Ned, who just laughs, at which point Cardholder's going to shoot him in the eyeballs, but Ned points out that he's a little punch drunk or daffy, and then Brock walks in. Brock is the exterminator. There is no one better suited to take down the monarch than Brock. Uh, I would just like to point out that Brock's presence here is strictly for one reason only, and it is not to kill the monarch. Brock serves no function in this episode except the one that he's going to play at the end. Uh, it's a little heavy-handed, but it gives us some really good moments. So we're going to let it ride. Um, well, and, uh, I want to point out that Monarch is technically a serial killer with the weirdest MO. 
Like, okay, he's killed five people very specifically because they were not Dr. Venture. <laughs> but that's a trend with serial killers is they keep killing people because they're not living up to the expectation of being the thing. I mean, it's very standard serial killer right there. <laughs> well, no, yeah, he's got a very like, weird right. tilt. Yeah, it's like a it's like a fun like back to basics inversion. Like, you know, <laughs> I really want to hurt this guy, but you're not him, so you've got to die. <laughs> um, I'd also like to point out that he is specifically not killing Rusty or JJ. Like, he's going out of his way not to kill JJ in this entire episode. Well, yeah, and that's a very curious thing because you would think he would commit because, like, again, he got his little jollies by by shouting Dr. Venture. And again, going back to that serial killer, like, you know, kind of uh, parallel there, that's a very, like, serial killer line. Like, he's uh, imposing his fantasies on his, his militian, right? Um, but then, like, yeah, you see him, like, start kind of governing himself when you would think that this is just, like, you know, another box of chocolates for him. He's like, oh, this is, all the good ones are still here. Like, you just dig in and, and get the job done on it. Um, at least to say he killed at a Dr. Venture. Right? Well, and he just, he's killed five people who weren't Dr. Venture. Now that he's got the chance to kill a Dr. Venture, he's going out of his way not to. So uh, there's definitely something going on here. And Brock is like, so you just want to kill the monarch? Okay. <laughs> right he's all in and jj's like that seems like the sporting thing to do sporting like big game hunting sporting no, like sporting like that again uh general like nice guy white imperialist like well we've got to put the poor guy out of his misery yeah Clearly, like, he's suffering it's the smart man's burden and <laughs> at this point Brock pretty much calls him on it. He's like, what, you want to shoot him? Maybe all his men and his wife, you could steal his cattle too, maybe burn his village down. And JJ's trying to rationalize, like, well, it's an antiquated system. My dad did this fake arch enemy nonsense in the 60s. Maybe my, this is actually a really good line. Maybe my brother is good with his namby-pamby guy chases you around in a costume business, but I'm not. And Brock's like, hey, no disrespect, Jonas, but this isn't so easy. These guys like their system. And Brock actually makes a really good case for this right here. He says, you take that away. You take their system away. And you're looking at a bunch of pissed off nutbags with ray guns and giant, I don't know, a giant octopus slash tank with laser eyes. <laughs> Cardholder's like, yo, I've seen one of those. And Doe, of course, says, I like the cut of this guy's jib. And Cardholder, to his credit, says, I like the cut of this guy's hair. Who doesn't love the Brock mullet? <laughs> this is this also implies that they've never met Brock before. And I don't know if this was, you know, is this the first time we see Cardholder and Doe? Yeah. Yeah, this, this is their, first their introduction. They just hadn't figured out how they were going to use them because they're clearly, like, if they're OSI, they have to have met Brock previously. Well, so, or they at least have to know who he is. Yeah. Like, know of him. And how would they call him in if they didn't know him? Well, I mean, again, like, I'm sure it's OSI's a big office, like... No, no it's not! Like, I... Do you... I, yeah, like, have you ever been on a helicarrier? I've been on two. Those things are massive. <laughs> right. I got lost both times. 
No, no, no. I'm, I'm in the East Wing, second floor, port. <laughs> right, yeah. No, um, also what I love about this scene is it's very sophisticated Brock in, in his very, you know, Brock way. Like, this situation is the same, like, way that, like, they break down uh, Japanese crime in the, was it uh, the Freakonomics documentary? Like, they allow a certain amount of, of criminal activity because organized crime keeps it in check. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's kind of the same thing as, like, you gotta let them have their organization. Without it, they're disorganized, and you don't even want to see that. Yeah. And that point is a really good one. You're exactly correct. And JJ decides, you know what? Fine. We're going to do this right. We're going to put on a big elaborate show, and that way everybody's happy except the monarch. So um, in the cocoon, right, uh, we bounce over to the cocoon. Speaking of cocoon, Wilford Brimley died. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The diabetes got him, I think. Isn't Too that soon. interesting that this man who had such a long career in Hollywood, he was in Ewok movies, for Christ's sakes. Yeah. All right? This guy had such a long career in Hollywood, is known for the weird way he says, diabetes. Dude, Seth MacFarlane ruined that man's career. <laughs> <laughs> took that man's entire filmography and summed it down to diabetes. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, you know, uh, there have been a number of deaths lately where the exact cause is never explicitly revealed. Um, however, there is someone who dies later this episode, and we know exactly how that happens. And... Before we get there, we first have to stop at the cocoon, where a henchman has just secured a chair to the ground. The monarch sits in it and feels like he's going to fall off, telling the henchman to secure it better using glue or nails or something. This is weird. Dr. Girlfriend comes in with a guild manual, and the monarch's essentially looking for news, and she gives him exactly the news that he wants, saying, quote, the antagonist, in the case of survival or escape, is granted extended vengeance. This includes guild-sanctioned immediate relatives. Did you notice the line there? Guild-sanctioned immediate relatives, right? And of course, Dr. Venture, Rusty, is a guild-sanctioned relative. She sits down in the chair, but then the chair falls over because it has not been secured. So something crazy is going on here. It's part of the monarch's grand plan and it seems like he's kind of doing it 100% right on the fly, which is unlike him, <laughs> right? So, I mean, you know, was it they say like a million monkeys at a million typewriters, one's bound to bang out like Hamlet? Yeah, infinite like, monkeys, infinite typewriters, you're going to get Hamlet at some point. Right, or even like, you know, a blind squirrel finds a nut. Yeah. To me, this is more uh, indicative of if you can get down to the monarch's true motivation, he becomes incredibly savvy. Like, this is him chasing the tire, right? But again, when he gets the tire, he doesn't know what the fuck he's going to do with it. But he knows how to chase the tire. Yeah, I get that. I get that. So, the tire in this case is clearly Dr. Rusty Venture. 
and he's using i mean it is jj the car at this point he's chasing the car to get to the tire well yeah i mean okay absolutely so then we get henchmen's 24 21 and one climbing out of the sewage pipes one stops to check the pipe 21 and 24 surface and one follows one follows and asks why they're both up there and they're freezing they decide they're going to go their own way henchman one is like all right take a deep breath i'm not how sure how far down the next air pocket is and they're like dude are you stupid like then they make this great tomb raider reference he's like i had that like i did that delora croft and tomb raider and she starts you know these paroxysms and it's like it was creepy right <laughs> and that's very like it's a very specific cultural reference like uh if you've ever watched that show spaced if you're an edgar, edgar wright fan uh there's one episode where like simon Pegg's character is like going through a hard breakup so he's playing PlayStation and just continually drowning Laura Croft, like, over and over. Like, the same way I fantasize about Hugh Jackman. <laughs> and, yeah, no, it's one of those, like, grisly moments in, like, video game history. Like, you look at the game developers, you're like, why? Like, what's going on? Do we need, do, do we need the company to cover therapy? Like, really? <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're definitely onto something there. Uh, it gets, uh, there are, it, it's one of those things that stays with you and it clearly stayed with 24 and 21 and they don't want to die that way. So of course one's like, well, we have to go perform the dark S7 maneuver. This is the most effective way. And 24 is like going alone. This is why you new guys always die. You just can't smell a cliche coming. I, and it's actually one of the things that's so fascinating about these characters. They're kind of like the Venture versus Deadpool. Like, they're the only ones who know that they're in a cartoon. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Well, and uh, thematically, also, uh, I love that there's a parallel here between, like, JJ and Henchman number one. They're both rejecting the system. JJ, you know, very much doesn't understand his part of it. And, you know, henchman number one, like, you know what? Uh, I've already said it twice um, against my better judgment. So we're going to go ahead and just call him Scott Hall. But yeah, that guy, uh, he very much, again, is being told what his place is. And he's like, no, that's not going to happen to me. That's not what I'm here for. And they're like, yeah, it, it really is. Um, you know, so there's that kind of uh, interesting thematic track on both sides um, where, you know, again, it turns out completely differently for, for both parties involved. Absolutely. Well, Hinchman uh, 1 is starting to get a little freaked out about this, right? So he decides he's going to follow them, right? And... <laughs> Dude, yeah, like, they've been chopping away at his confidence slowly now, like... Now the confidence can't bear the weight of the insecurity. It's starting to buckle. <laughs> mean girls are getting to him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like they went like high school on him. Like <laughs> so from there, we get back to Spider Skull Island's uh, great secret, which is Scaramantula's secret weapon. And 
JJ is showing off a legit, gigantic 60s style death ray. And Brock is like, I, I don't know if they show him from the waist down, but you can only imagine that man went from six to midnight pretty quickly. So, uh, this is probably the most quote unquote uncool we'll ever see Brock Sampson where he is fangirling over this, you know, giant doom laser. You know, he does a lot of like badass stuff and he's the cool guy who doesn't look at explosions, but he's like, oh, no fucking way. Late 60s ultra death ray. What? It's like the the guy who's never impressed by anything, but then like a hot rod comes by and like all of a sudden, oh, hey, that's like a 1965. And you're just like, oh, okay, you're a car guy. That's your one thing. All right, totally. (laughs) I would love to see like the low rider version of like laser magazines, like Doom Laser. (laughs) Yes. All the classifieds in the back. Riding old school death tech. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, it, it, it's actually like Brock, of course, like, oh, freaking gorgeous. Cardholder's like, if it were a woman, I'd marry it. And Doe says, and I jeopardize our friendship by nailing your hot wife. <laughs> <laughs> and they totally start getting into the like specifics, like gyroscopic positioning at six points. Sick, tight. <laughs> and get this, it comes out of the top of the skull. That's how it's done. Right. It just keeps getting better and better for Brock. Like, you want some cake? Awesome. Here's this frosting and a cherry. Yeah, pretty much. You want some whipped cream? Oh, do I? So while that's going on, the henchmen make their way into the museum portion, uh, which they, unbeknownst to 24 and 21, was their target. One goes over to the uh, wall panel. Henchman one goes over the wall panel, starts fiddling with some wires. 21 and 24 talk about a museum and they like they're kind of like why is there a museum here right like this is on an abandoned island out in the middle of nowhere like who's going to come to a museum here um and then henchman once starts asking for extra tools and 21 and 24 are like we don't wear our utility belts because they're dorky now i actually have to kind of pass i've got to double back on this for just a second if you offered Hank a utility belt, would he take it? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, definitely. Why? Batman. Batman. Well, and, and this is I'm going to say a word. That- I'm going to say a trigger word. Pouches. <laughs> Why is 21 against the pouches? Because you know as well as I do that he should be all about a utility belt with cool gadgets. Well, it's the same reason, like, I love a lot of things, but I don't like them on me because they make me look fat. Like, there's no such thing as a slimming utility belt for a fat dude. Like, <laughs> you're not making, like, a, 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 you know, fat dude in a jerkin and a mask and butterfly wings any, look any more badass with, like, a chunky belt around Dude, the waist. Vertical lines. You just vertical, vertical lines. Yeah. Vertical <laughs> <laughs> you gotta lead the eye down. <laughs> There's gotta be some type of boot cut pouch. Oh man, uh, oh, that's perfect. Only we a man, a comic book artist who could help us envision this. 
Well, and what were the pants you discovered a few years back? Oh, the French dancers' pants? <laughs> yeah. I love those things. Ballroom dancers, French yeah. ballroom dancing pants. Yeah. yeah, the French ballroom dancers. Dude, those things are amazing. Because they're sharp. They look great, like, with a suit, but they're, like, super functional, which is great when you're bending over to pick up, like, a 45-pound, like, you know, 12-inch speaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good for work, I take it. 15. Well, like, the thing about uh, hinching when you're a DJ is that you get dressed up in a suit to do manual labor. It's like going to a funeral, and you're always the pallbearer. That's messed up. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, that's pretty good. So you're exactly on point here. Uh, it just apparently is not working for 21, who thinks that the pouches make him look fat. And 24 is like, yeah, that's what makes you feel fat. I'm just surprised that the utility belt isn't like a fanny pack. Like, that seems like monarch budget to me. Like, all right, guys, here's your utility belt. These are fanny packs. <laughs> I went down to like the army surplus store, bought a bunch of stuff and like spray painted it yellow. Like that was the most that guy was going to do. <laughs> yeah. So they are having this discussion when they start riffing on henchman one again and henchman one's like, Oh, I think it's funny that you think I'm the one who's going to die. And 21 to 24 then just decide to go off on all the ways henchman one is going to die. Like, you know, like, oh, like a giant log's going to fall down and crush you. Like, you know, you're going to get electrocuted. Like, they're just, it, it's, so, <laughs> it's so morbid, right? And, like, to sit there, it's like going to a children's cancer ward and, like, oh, your leukemia, huh? How's your leukemia coming? Right? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, one thing to contemplate your own mortality, but it's something else to contemplate other people's mortality in front of them. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's pretty much it. And uh, there's a lot of that happening right there. And one of the things that, uh, I mean, this is obviously getting to henchman one. You know, you, you make uh, the leukemia reference here. Did you ever see that Chappelle show sketch where he goes and plays, uh, was it like NBA 2K Live? with like a kid on like PlayStation 2, like a, a Make-A-Wish thing. Uh-uh. Oh, dude, so he's playing. Wait a minute, a kid asked to hang out with Dave Chappelle? Yeah, this was a sketch on his show. So like the sketch was, uh, it was Make-A-Wish and like, he was like, man, I just, I love the Chappelle show. I wanted to hang out with you, play video games for a hot minute. And so they're playing like NBA 2K and you know he's like crushing him and he just slowly starts like you know chipping away at his confidence like until the kid like you know is just getting mercilessly beaten and finally like <laughs> dies and like he's you know he codes like he's like beep and like you know dave Chappelle's like looking around like oh shit, there's nobody else here like he grabs the paddles he's like come on billy come on make it billy and he shocks him poof clear and like come on billy you can do this you're a fighter clear poof and billy wakes up he's like oh god thank god billy now pick up these sticks so i can finish whipping your ass <laughs> and that's like the whole scenario here like Oh, Henchman 1 is Billy so hard right now. <laughs> well, he is crushing it because now he's like, so, easy peasy. Now you know what the Darkest 7 maneuver is. 24 is like, we do? <laughs> right? 
So the monarch is back in the cocoon. He's, he's, you know, he comments that things are looking pretty good. Dr. Girlfriend notes that uh, it looks good as long as you don't turn your head. And the monarch gets a call from Henchman One, who says the S, the Dark S7 maneuver is done. The monarch is just completely flabbergasted, shocked, and compliments, quote, those idiots. And the monarch says, raise the Capricorn device, bring Jonas Jr. up on the, and you're expecting big screen, but then they wheel out an old school like TV tray from like school, like the roller cart, the TV cart with like a CRT screen on it. Oh, dude, as like the, the AV nerd. Um, and I, I mean, you know me, I was even professionally an AV nerd with you. Yes, like, you were. This, man, this just got me right in the heart. I was like, they wheel that thing and I'm like, shout out. Yes. There's a drunk substitute teacher like with a hungover, like a hangover somewhere in that cocoon right now. <laughs> so that is what they set up in front of his throne. And Jonas Jr. gets a call from the monarch as he is sitting in the saddle of the death ray. And the monarch opens up with an evil laugh and uh, thought you got rid of me. And they're actually, they've got a pretty good banter going, right? And the monarch is like, oh, I'm coming for you, okay? Pray and Brock you. looks at the console and says, uh, they're about 20 miles offshore. That's really humming. I didn't even know that thing could move like that. Which again, brings me back to my other point about why Spider Skull Island has to be in the Pacific. Because Brock knows how fast the cocoon can move and it's moving way too fast right which well, means is that actually the cocoon or is that the dark s7 maneuver taking effect and just well and, and again I, my larger point here is that all this stuff has to be centered in the southwestern united states within a few hours of los angeles right like it's got to be like if we're talking like las vegas to los angeles like general circumference well, in the first episode, uh, not the pilot, right? But Dio so dangerous. Uh, that takes place in Tijuana, so I mean that that checks out too. Like geographically speaking, I mean everything kind of holds up to that. Um, again, I'm still sticking it out for like Lake Havasu. Like I think it would be hilarious to see like the party boats like float up to the <laughs> Spider Skull Island. That's why he has the museum. Yeah, he's got the museum, and that's why clearly why he legalized the the weed and the gay marriage. So the other option here is that uh, all of the geography in the Venture Brothers is like Springfield, where it's bordered <laughs> by like Ohio, Florida, California, and New York. We're like, yeah, it's it's uh, uh what's that one line in Oh Brother Art that like goddamn geographically and not geographic anomaly? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> two weeks away from everything. Um, yeah, no, I mean. Uh, it, well, and you have to think like the kinds of vehicles that they're using also determine like, I mean, there are hover tanks, there's X-1 jets, there's flying cocoons. So we always have this frame of reference from driving, whereas like it seems like the primary mode of transportation by and large is like super science vehicle. Dude, there is no way a hover tank is clocking 250 miles an hour. But no, I mean, a hover tank... Uh, not having to bar, like, go on a, a, a you know, a roadway per se um, in the, the, like, you know, American Southwest 
I mean, if you're going 75 miles an hour, that hover tank is taking you 70 mi- 75 miles an hour uh, in a straight line more than a car is. You know what I mean? There are, you've got some parts of the Southwest that are taking the straight line, but you got a lot of mountains, mesas, yep. and like, it's not like, I mean, you got the Bonneville Salt Flats, man. That's about where you're going to get like good hover tank. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see like, oh, uh, like a bunch of, uh, you know, villains and heroes and stuff like getting out to the Bonneville Salt Flats, like 1950s drag style, like, you know, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll run my hover tank against your uh, speeder bike there for pink slips, like. Yeah, dude, like I kind of feel like what's the super villain equivalent of NASCAR? Like, that's gotta exist. <laughs> the wacky races. <laughs> right. There was a Stop. man with a dog. <laughs> and the dog used to laugh. <laughs> the monarch makes a joke about uh, Jonas Jr. You know, writing up a list of questions for his dad. And, you know, he kind of turns and he keeps getting feedback from Dr. Girlfriend about how he's doing. He's still, like, really, like pining for her approval here and she's offering him pointers like she's making him better right they really have like it's it's one of those things like we actually see some good uh relationship development in this episode so at this point jj is also trying to get into a little bit and he's like oh the butterfly falls willingly into spider skull's web at which point he starts getting arched a little bit by cardholder and doe <laughs> right we're like, uh, it's not your best work, all right? But, you know, <laughs> hey, at least he's trying, right? And JJ says he's starting to see the allure of this. And Brock's trying, like, he's like, so, I guess you want to shoot it yourself? And JJ's like, of course. And Brock's trying to talk about it. And then he's like, so do you have any, uh, like, death ray experience? I mean, you know, it might be more than what you're up for. <laughs> JJ calls him too. He's like, "Oh, is the great Brock Sampson jealous of my super sweet death ray?" Well, okay, so they have the shrink ray, and and why it's like, "What you want me to go out back and shrink some cans?" Right? Like, imagine what's the going out back and shooting equivalence of his uh, super sweet death ray? Hey, Eli, could you uh, go ahead and toss me another twelve pack of satellites up in the air? I'm trying to fine tune the gyroscopes on this baby. Maybe that's what uh, maybe that's what SpaceX is doing with the uh, satellites, or just like putting stuff up there. Like, well, all right, the idea of ordering like a twelve pack of satellites. Like, yeah, <laughs> give so, me a dozen satellites. Oh, and can you give me one to sample? Like, yeah. JJ hops into the saddle. He tells Brock to fire her up right after telling Brock tough tiddlywinks. <laughs> like. Tough titties, bro. So we're back into the museum. The henchman, uh, henchman one says the floor is laser tripwire. He suggests they take another route, but 2124 are like, nah, we're just not gonna die. We're just gonna walk across the floor. Everything's <laughs> gonna be fine. And this is where we get 21 and 24, like really breaking it down for henchman one. 21's like, you still don't get it. 24 and I have been on like a thousand missions. We've been shot at, dipped in acid. 24 jumps in with, Brock Samson hit me with a car. Drove right into my kidney. Here I am. 
like, yeah, we could walk across this floor and nothing would hit us. But then like this huge log would swing down and take your head off. Hint 24 is like, hey, here, what's your name? And Henchman 1's like, Henchman number one. <laughs> so, see, you are nameless. Henchman 1's like, I'm Scott Hall. My name is Scott Hall, okay? They have officially gotten to him. Like, he's, 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 he's had it. He's done. And it's 24, it got a cocktail a little bit. It's like, nope, won't help. <laughs> well, and this is foreshadowing, really. Um, because only in death do we have names in Project Mayhem. Right? Well, that is truly unfortunate. And it, and what was it? Uh, 21 says, it's like, no, no. Now it's just pathos. So you're dying in my lap and I'm all, Scott, Scott, don't you quit on us. Don't you dare. And 24 says, you just made your unavoidable death more pathetic. <laughs> okay, nothing's going to happen to me. And then he throws up like the rock fingers and just goes. Yeah. So 21 and 24 walk out of the tripwired floor. Nothing happens. Scott all pauses for a second as they walk past him and decides to follow. And as soon as he steps out, what happens? That's it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because, of course, in the death ray room, like, the ray is raised up through the skull of Spider Skull Island. And Brock calls out, there's an intruder in the museum. JJ, who can barely hear him because it's so loud, says, what, Zapruder films in the museum? No, there's someone in the museum. Can't be. We're closed on the weekends. <laughs> Brock makes another play to fire the laser and decides if he can, he's going to go check out what's on the floor. Uh, Henchman 1 is looking at his radar GPS tracker when Brock runs into the room. And, like, watching Scott Hall escape was actually really good. It was like watching a gazelle flee an approaching lion, right? Like, yeah. it was, there was beauty, there was skill, there was grace. And, like, while Brock <laughs> runs after Henchman 1, 21 and 24 are posing with replicas of Team Venture in the museum and are like, I can't believe that worked. Like, that's so cliche. Poor guy missed out on the greatest cliche and deception. But then he is getting killed by Brock. It's a glorious way for a henchman to go. I would, uh, you know what? I want to sit down and cut up all the, the Brock and Scott Hall footage and then do like a, a David Attenborough narration. Like, you know, and, and the Brock Sampson pursues his henchman. And <laughs> oh, it looks like he's going to get away. He gives him a slight juke of the hips, but it's still not enough. Brock gets the clenched fist around him. And at that point, it's over. Uh-oh, it looks like he has gone for the ass clamp. There is truly no escape now. <laughs> right. All right, so, uh, Savage, being that you uh, live in the, the, the Triangle area of North Carolina, um, one of the great things about that area is you get spoiled in terms of quality museums. I mean, oh, it's not... We, you know, we are, we are the smithsonian of the south i mean there's a lot of like great stuff there um like having lived in the area myself would you like take your kids to like would you get a family membership to the spider skull island museum like would you would you take your haas to like you know uh spider skull summer camps dude 
that museum does not look good enough for my membership dollars. Like that museum is clearly a vanity project and not worthy of even a full hour of my kids' time. They would destroy that place and ask me to pay for it. And that's not happening. Well, I mean, isn't that exactly what Jonas did to Scaramantula? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So 21 and 24, then come across the pirate captain. And this is the joke that the entire Trank setup was built to achieve. And can you explain what's going on? Yeah, so basically they uh, they pulled off their amazing, uh, you know, going freeze frame to uh, trick Brock and then basically have it brought back right on them with Pirate Captain in what is perfectly a pirate scene, basically. He's just kind of coming out of getting that last dart from Cardholder and Doe that he had charged in the room for. And he has probably one of my favorite lines. The Henchman 24 is like, ah, geez, you're real. And then Pirate <laughs> Captain just replies back with, used to be. <laughs> I'm like, is this where you're at when you start your, uh, your, your long road into a trank addiction? You're just like, I'm not even a person anymore. I'm just a vehicle for the trank to go through. <laughs> well, at this point, the Pirate Captain is asking if they carry dart guns. What happens next? Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, of course, it's like, you know, you want a shot of tranquilizer dart? I have the dart monkey on me back. Just one man. And of course, you know, he immediately does the, the typical junkie behavior. I'm going straight. I just need one last one. One more. And like, you know, 24 is put off. 21 clearly also visibly put off. Um, so Pirate Captain, like, you know, starts exposing his neck. Like, you know, Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt just showed up in, you know, vampire attire. Like, he's like, yes, just right there in the neck. And, uh, like, they, they give him the trank. And, you know, it's immediate ecstasy. And this is my favorite pirate captain line of the episode. Uh, yes, oh, it's like getting sucked off by an angel. A sweet angel with tranquilizer. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then he then falls over. Like, one thing that you didn't mention was that he is, the pirate captain is in the pirate display. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, he's, like, falling over into, like, the bosomy barmaid, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dude, this is straight up a scene out of, like, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in Disney. I was trying to figure out how it fit into the, uh, the hospital, or not the hospital, into the, uh, the museum in the first place. I was like, um... Yeah, it's a little off. Yeah, but I mean, it works for the joke. It's amazing for the joke. But I was like, I don't, I mean, maybe with like <laughs> Spanakopita pirates, maybe they were doing on a little... the uh, On Spider Skull Island, they have like a Pirates of the Sargasso uh, ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, let's be honest. If how many times did Johnny Quest, did Johnny Quest ever encounter pirates in his adventures? I mean, technically the first episode had sort of pirates they just weren't quite dressed like them i like i can only imagine that at some point rusty has been abducted by actual pirates like pirates of the caribbean pirates not just greek pirates like rusty as a plot device is there to get kidnapped right <laughs> so essentially 
that's kind of what happens. You know that there was some famous adventure with pirates that is never actually referenced in the show yet. Definitely. So Henchman 1, a.k.a. Scott Hall, continues to run away from Brock. He's doing pretty well for himself. But at this same time, this is when the episode really builds up. And these guys do this so well. Like, they build up all these coordinating, uh, like, tension moments until we've got all this stuff happening simultaneously and you're kind of on the edge of your seat. And you've got JJ getting ready to fire as the cocoon charges ahead and the monarch and doctor girlfriend are getting ready to prepare for something and the laser's about to fire and Scott Hall's running for Brock and Brock's about to catch him. And Scott, we get this beautiful moment. It's actually some of my favorite animation where in the series where Scott Hall like whips out a bolo and throws it at Brock and Brock lets it pass right over him. He does like a matrix move and then grabs the spinning bolo and somehow manages to redirect its energy back towards Scott Hall, who then gets wrapped up in the bolo that he threw around his neck and starts choking to death. And you see Brock, uh, like at this point, right? Uh, the mo- Dr. Girlfriend and the Monarch both scream now as the death ray fires and then Brock grabs Scott Hall by the head and just punches him mercilessly. The ray beam connects with the cocoon, which explodes in a fiery, what's the word I'm looking for here? Explosion, right? In credits. We prefer crucible. Right? In credits. All this just happened in seconds. In credits. Like, it's just... Uh... It's like you said, they really do the tension building cross-cutting um, very well. And it's a, you know, uh, a technique they use not infrequently, but they always use it appropriately. It's like they get this great piece of music from JG and they're like, we don't want to have to play it eight times for all of the different moments. Let's just get all of those moments to line up the one time we play the song. It, it, you're, you're right, it's not overused, but every time they do it, it's one of these, like, you almost don't even know, because then they usually do something like this, where at the end, we come back and we kind of undercut the whole thing with a joke, almost. I, I, I love the bit that, essentially, they don't get that they were the reason everything just worked and got pulled off. I love how they don't necessarily make everybody look to be the smart hero every time. They're, they're, they're kind of more than okay letting it play out naturally more realistically like this so well and again you've kind of gone into the detail of it but you haven't explained what's happening so tell us what's happening in the stinger so essentially what we find out is the dark s7 maneuver worked uh they hacked into the video feed and replaced the footage i mean it could also be the hacking that got them to be uh moving so quickly with the uh, cocoon like brock had never seen before the laser beam did get shot off i mean we saw that happen so where'd that go apparently it got shot off into a cloud and they they saved the day uh henchman one's dead so he can't take any credit for that at least as far as we know yet and um yeah they're basically looking pretty happy except for uh they get told that they need to get picked up at a certain drop point and do you do you guys think that they actually knew where drop point alpha seven was or are they just kind of screwed out in the water right now no, they're totally boned. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, like, 
for for just a hot minute they don't even realize like you know what they were doing so they think the monarch's dead too and then like you know uh the monarch hits him up and is like prepare for the drop point and they're like fucking drop point we thought you were dead <laughs> like <laughs> i was worried about having to move back in with my dad like and, and <laughs> talking the, about the drop most points. honest like moment of the monarch is like you know oh, i hate that you're my best men <laughs> And that right there is, in summarize, the most accurate explanation of 21 and 24's relationship to the monarch that we get in the entire series. Like, there is an inherent amount of self-loathing in the monarch's hiring practices. <laughs> well, like, do you know what the secret of their success is? Uh, it's actually, uh, I'm going to take it from, uh, I think it's an old, like, John Lovitz bit, where it's like, you know, yeah, I rode the middle all the way to the middle. <laughs> and that's exactly that's what they did. Lovitz. Like, they're just beyond average, and sometimes below it in every way, like, where basically they just have, like, herd immunity from death for a long time. <laughs> No, it's not herd immunity because all the other henchmen get killed. Right. No herd immunity. A siege immunity? Is that what we'll call it? Like siege immunity? It's it's a whole thing, man. Like Well, and uh I wonder, okay, just by the sheer amount of, of people that die by the, the hands of like Brock Samson, and again going to kind of like, you know, the, the geographic localism. Do you think that there are like tons of counties in southern Midwest states that have like officially listed as like cause of death, you know, Brock Sampsoning? I assume, given the reaction we get from some of the local police and some of the other episodes, that that is probably an official cause of death. Like, they, the local cops on the venture compound know the deal. Well, and I, feel like I mean, like, I would totally love that scene. It was, you know, a cop runs into him. Like, you get that one scene where he, Brock runs into the army post and he's like, Brock fucking Samson, you know? Uh, the cop's like, yeah, oh, uh, Mr. Samson, are, are you what they named the cause of death after? <laughs> right. <laughs> I always had a feeling it was kind of, and it's been a while since I've seen the, the first one now, but the cop in the first John Wick movie who comes by to like check on everything and it's just like, yeah. clearly everything is not okay, but he's just yeah. like, okay just kind of keep it quiet if you can like i always i feel like it's got to be like that kind of a vibe man i'm never going to like that's it i'm done i'm only going to sit back and pretend that those are brock samson movies from now on (laughs) replace the dog with adrian right replace the russian mob with guild strangers and like bam well and and guns like the john wick uses too much gun maybe he's more of a shore leave and John Wick did go to a lot of discotheques. <laughs> he did. He did. <laughs> Should be short leave. I, yeah, I so am now never movie. going to get the idea of John Wick as shore leave out of my head. Boom. Yummy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's the, what's the replacement for the dog? For shore leave? Al- the alchemist. Yeah, the alchemist. <laughs> oh, God. We have to... We have to kill the alchemist at the beginning of the the, the the shore leave movie. But come on, I mean, you intuitively love the alchemist. 
He's just a paunchy old gay guy in Hawaiian shirts who has uh, like magical powers and a penchant for like, you know, day drinking. <laughs> like the alchemist is your great aunt. That is a pretty great aunt. Yeah. So I, I, I think now that we've kind of reached the end of the episode, it's time that you guys explain why this particular episode is among the most revealing episodes about 21 and 24. Well, uh, this gives us our, it's, it's definitely like, a, um, in my opinion, a bit more on the structural end of, of Hinge life. Like the reason uh, I, I definitely like Lepidopterus in our 21, 24 block is because not only do you get the mean girls element from 21 and 24, with Scott Hall, but like the whole time they're doing it, they're giving you the rules by which, you know, all the other hench folk operate around them. Again, it's that Deadpool moment. So not only are you getting like grade A, you know, just peak 2124, but you're also getting a really clear, like, you know, this is the MO, this is how things function. And I also get the vibe that this isn't the first number. I mean, clearly uh, Monarch doesn't necessarily bring the number one along on all the, the missions because she had to kind of make a point to him to uh, include him. But this isn't the first number one that they've probably come up and dealt with. I feel like it's sort of like a probably a running thing for them that they always, whenever they meet number one, it's a different guy every time because that guy's always getting killed. Um, <laughs> right. So like this Mean Girls bit that they're doing, like this isn't like an off the cuff, new thing like i almost wouldn't be surprised that they're just kind of like running down their old lines to like let's just see if we can crack this one by the end of the mission oh dude like i just feel like this totally, is like a real day in the life of 21 is totally gretchen wieners <laughs> for mean girls the movie okay i'm no you no got the I, reference down way too tight i do not know it that well i, I was going I'm, I'm revealing way too much about myself <laughs> uh, well, i've said thing. too much <laughs> wrote that movie tina fey is hilarious I have never actually seen that movie. It's dude, it's really good, and not only is like Tina Fey wonderful in it, like or wonderful for writing it uh, and in it, but uh, you get some great Neil Flynn, you know, janitor from Scrubs. But yeah, so the, like Gretchen Wieners is the popular girl who kind of conducts the the mean girls, you know, and she's like the popular girl. Is going one of the the running jokes in the movie is you don't know who Gretchen Wieners is. And like later on, that's kind of 21's like, you don't know who two ton 21 is? Yeah. 21 is totally Gretchen Wieners. <laughs> okay, so we have an expert, we have an expert on staff here. I did see it at least maybe 10 years ago at this point. It is good. It's worth the watch. I, I would give it a shot, Savage. <laughs> I uh I know that um uh Heathers was just covered oh. by Shat the Movies. And uh, I, I, I really enjoy the Shat the Movies guys, and their reviews are usually, like, I, I guess I can't say guys anymore. They've got, uh, they've got additional guests. And half it's the better than the Shat the Bed people. Yeah. So, and, and, like, I actually really enjoyed listening to their review of it more than I enjoyed watching the movie back in the day. Well, and... Uh... Are you not a fan of Heathers? Heathers as a no, I, I liked it, but, like, I, like... It's you know, it's some funny, of my favorite lines. Like, did you ever see the Red Letter Media review of The Phantom Menace? No. It was longer than the movie and more enjoyable. Yes. Oh, 
I remember we we sat down and we we arched Sabby with it because he was very much like, yeah, Phantom Menace was a great movie. And we're like, we're going to sit down and make you watch this movie about how bad Phantom Menace was. And it's as long as Phantom Menace. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, aren't they doing a Heather series now? No, that got killed, I believe. Oh. Gone oh, way I, of the Howard wait, the are you saying that in, the, in, in Heathers, they kill a lot of Heathers? Yeah, the, uh, they, they finally, like, went all meta, like, uh, Scream 4, I think, got all meta. Yeah, they, they killed the Heathers reboot. That is um, so meta. Right? I mean, no, nah, I fucking love that movie. That was such a, I love a dead gay son. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's just some lines in there. And the you amount know, of things I have said girl- to fuck soft me, fuck me softly with, like that is all from that movie. That there was a phase there where I tried to just find the best word to put at the end of that sentence because it's just, it's the best. I gotta say, the, that movie had a greater impact on the language of that era than mm-hmm. almost any other thing that you can point to. It was, I fucking love it. I end up talking like differently for like a week afterwards. If I watch that one every once in a while, I, every once in a blue moon, I'll find it on somewhere. Hulu's had it for a minute. So that it got rewatched a few times. It's when, it's where Notarider had, I like, she doesn't get credit for it enough, but that's probably like my favorite of that era piece she did. It's just in fucking Slater. Dude. Yeah. Christian Slater. Uh, and that's been one of my favorite features of Archer in the past few seasons was Slater as the, the CIA agent and, and, you know, uh, definitely like bringing him back the same way psych was very much like standing uh val kilmer for a long time until he finally showed up on the show like oh how great would have been adventures could have like stuck it out until bowie showed up right they were so scared that they were going to get in trouble for that (laughs) uh no i mean and uh i don't know like savage what's what's your take on on like the the where we're at with twenty one and twenty four, uh, in our our first episode of of the the hinge block, this is hard to really put a finger on because we are essentially introducing characters we have already spent a ton of time with, and if I'm being asked to explain these characters to someone who might not be familiar with it. I think you did a really good job when you kind of refer to them as Laurel and Hardy. They are R2 and C-3PO. They are comic relief who end up getting elevated into series regulars. And they get elevated that way because the general, and I think we kind of touched on it earlier, they are the Deadpool of this series. Their awareness of the cliches actually protects them from falling victim to them, even though they are engaged in the cliches, right? Like, you know, they're literally giving Scott Hall so much grief about what a cliche he is, and then how do they hide from Brock? The most cliched way possible. They are all in on the cliches, except for when they're not. And it's, it's interesting to me, like, I would absolutely have expected 21 to wear the pouches unironically. And if he wasn't going to wear them in all, like with sincerity, I would have expected him to wear them ironically. Right? Like, like uh, 
you know, we, we kind of touched on Scream for just a hot minute. They're kind of like Randy from Scream. Like, yeah. the reason he survives is because he understands the ever-changing rules of horror films and horror film sensibilities, right? Like, these guys understand the the fluid continuum of, like, you know, hinge tropes and cliches and how to manipulate them, when to do it, when not to do it, you know. And never say, I'll be right back. Ooh, I'll be right back. Right. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> I'm going alone. Like, I guess I'll go it alone. Oh, I, I guess you will then. <laughs> right. It's their take on this that really, yeah, it, because the monarch is all seriousness. And one of the things that we see both of them say in this episode is to, to Hinter number one, why are you taking this so seriously? Like, let's pause for a moment and reflect on the fact that these two guys in butterfly costumes have snuck into a place called Spider Skull Island, where a death ray is going to be firing at their like base of operations and all their friends in just a little bit. They don't really know what they're doing. They were just told to go, so they went. Swimming okay, through sewage. Like, winding up down there, and they're just going to hang out. And their response to Scott Hall is, why are you taking this so seriously? Well, and you know what? You actually just made me realize that. That's a part of, like, a, a, a key aspect of, of both their characters is, you have a hard time raising the stakes on those guys because they don't care. <laughs> like, it's, they, they just, they're so used to surviving it all. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the, there for a moment at the end of the episode, 21 thought, like 21, 24 thought that like, you know, Monarch was dead. Did you see them burst into tears or was it like, well, I guess I'll see a group next week, right? Right. <laughs> like, uh, you know, there there are no stakes for them in that way. And the only time that that really, like, comes up is, like, you know, when when it's finally brought to their front door, so to speak, you know, when, when 24 dies. You're making me think, is it episodes like this that as writers push them to thinking we need to do something about this. Like, they're getting too easy of a ride here. Uh, if we're going to raise the stakes with them, we got to do something. Because, I mean, if you've listened to the commentary on this entire season, the running joke is, and then we kill them at the end of the season. Like, there's a little bit of glee in their voice about it. Like, it's almost like they got annoyed with how the cool kids or the, the mean girls that they were, like, they wanted to take them down a peg, so they figured out how to do it. Well, and, yeah, uh, you know what it is? It's like what happens when Winona Ryder ends up being the like head of the Mean Girls. <laughs> right. You know, uh, I, I'm really glad you brought that up. That is just really solid arching on their part from season three commentary. Um, mm -hmm. It's one of the things they like. Doc Hammer very specifically rails against. Like, you know, if you are upset that I just spoiled something for you on a commentary, you're doing it wrong like if you're watching the episode with commentary if this is the first time you're ever watching the episode and you're doing with commentary i'm happy to spoil it for you because you're a moron 
<laughs> and like kind of leaning into that attitude. You know, he's not wrong. Every like almost every commentary starts off with like in season three. Yeah, twenty four dies. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, actually, Beast, I think you made a really interesting point about this earlier. Uh, you have some feelings about the season three DVD box set that uh, I believe you should share with our audience. So, uh, you know, in, in venture culture, uh, because of the, the, the span of time that, like, you know, the series takes, how you watch the show definitely, like, gives you a certain kind of memory. Uh, Savage used to be a heavy torrent guy. So he would just stack out, like, a, a Windows Media Player playlist, get cozy on the couch, and fall asleep or not fall asleep and then get up and go to work either or uh i bought them on dvd because i'm a special features junkie and season three is the worst dvd to fall asleep to because <laughs> it has that like pitfall like but like coleco vision atari music like <laughs> i can hear it in my head now but i can't bring my mouth to mimic the sounds. <laughs> it's almost like trying to say Voldemort in the Harry Potter world. Like, I just, I don't, I can't. <laughs> the, the sound that shall not be reproduced. Yeah, right. But it, it's definitely like one of the, the neater, I mean, it plays into the, the whole, like, you know, DVD box set with the, uh, the rapper looks like an old Atari game. It even has like a live action you know, picture with live action models of them playing the the Brock Pitfall game that they use for the menu. It's really clever and it's, you know, kitschy. It's very nostalgic, you know, very much plays to the, the sensibilities of the show, but it is some straight up like a clockwork orange fucking Noriega like, you know, psychological mind-breaking menu music. Wow. That really went somewhere i uh i've, I've had this in my head it, it, for years can, now and i finally get to kind of vent about this if i can bring you back to the light i would like to go ahead and pronounce my word which in this case is a phrase of the episode and that would be the valsalva maneuver that was a damn good reference and one that i guarantee most people who saw the episode immediately thought, wow, that's great. I should remember that and then forgot. Well, and I know the Valsalva maneuver is actually a, like one of the steps in a rusty venture. <laughs> right. It's, well, it's important to equalize the pressure. Well, steps two, A, and six. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my, favorite back step, on you. <laughs> my favorite step is three R. <laughs> You know, there are words that sound like things are, like uh, curmudgeon. The definition of curmudgeon sounds like the way curmudgeon, like is- Or screech. Yeah. And Valsalva is not one of those words. <laughs> Valsalva makes me think of like a film on the back of your throat. Like- Yeah. It, it sounds something, it, it, so it does sound totally organic. It, like when you go camping 
like in a cabin or something. Oh, and you wake up first thing in the morning and you've got all the Valsalva all over you? Well, yeah, like you've, you know, slept with your mouth open snoring and that like layer of like dust and mold and film like on the back of your throat. You're like, that's the Valsalva. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. I get that. You get Valsalva? You should see a doctor. It's not infected. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have infected you with our mouth salvations. And so with the opposite of salutations, we bid you adieu from yet another spectacular episode full of way too muchness. You know, for somebody who loves the English language, what did you just do? <laughs> that is my B game. <laughs> All right, right, cool. Like, now we're seeing the B. Because we started off like, bam. Like, I think maybe you exploded. Like, you were like a college athlete bursting out of the paper, like, way so, hard. You're like, yeah, let's go. So here, and then, like, we're in the I'm fourth quarter. Looking, I'm actually looking at the clock right now. <laughs> And I'm realizing that I hopped on my computer uh, 15 hours ago. That's how much editing had to go on for this podcast. (laughs) And I am am so glad that our listeners have joined us. And Uh, as such, I'm going to bid everyone a farewell. Would you guys like to say anything before we wrap up the episode? Valsalva maneuver. Well, go team Valsalva. I have been your host, the inimitable Professor Brock Savage. With me, as always, is my longtime companion, the inimitable, the unconquerable, the logically untenable Beast Lamode. And we were joined, as always, and by always I mean mostly, and by mostly I mean quite often, and by quite often I mean almost always by our resident denizen of dinner theater, <laughs> the Bond villain. <laughs> and so, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming out to join us for this week's episode, The Lepidopterist. We will continue to explore 21 and 24 on next week's episode when Conjectural Technologies of Venture Industries podcast returns. And so, gentlemen, tonight... Instead of giving a go team venture, I would just like to say not every V is a no-no word. <laughs> you know, it's a pity we're pinching this off right now because the delirium is really working for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes you just got to grab the paper and wipe, bro. We got to pinch it off here. Have a good night, fellas. All right. Night, gang. Have a good one. <laughs> Conjectural Technologies Podcast is hosted, produced, and researched by me, Beast Mode, Professor Brock Savage, and Vaude Villain. Edited by Beast Mode and Vaude Villain. Intro music produced by Professor Brock Savage. Email us at conjecturaltechpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at conjecttech underscore pot and go team venture.
around the 15th hour, the delirium started to kick in. <laughs> hey, yo, Doc Savage, I heard caffeine can cause serious delirium. <laughs> um, oh, I need to watch that again. Hey, you there! Pathetic guy in the black and yellow butterfly costume! Have you been bungling through life, not able to control anyone around you? Do you want to force others to do your bidding? May I present the Hypno-Eye? Make friends and influence people by influencing people. Just listen to these happy customers. Hypno-Eye is the best. I love bamboo shoots under my fingernails. The Hypno-Eye is the best Hypno-Eye. I have ever owned, owned, owned. I love Hypno Eye. I do all of my son's homework now. Just call this toll free number on an untraceable phone. And don't forget to stare closely at your screen before ordering. <laughs>